It's February 11th, 13th, excuse me, uh, 2018. This is Heart of the Matter. Tonight we have our very special esteemed guest, uh, Dr. James White, Alpha and Omega Ministries with us. We're going to have the pleasure of hearing from him and talking with him uh, in, a, in a minute. Uh, before I turn it over to him, some housekeeping items. We're going to be taking breaks tonight because we're going to have a, a longer show. So if you're in our live audience, if you can, please try to wait for the restroom or to get food during those breaks. We'll also be airing spots for our home audience uh, who's watching all over the world, uh, quite frankly. So uh, those spots will be for you during those breaks. Also in-house, please uh, try to refrain from uh, talking. And especially behind the boxes, you think you're quiet, but it echoes and it comes right back out here. Uh, and also silence your devices if you would. Uh, personally, would appreciate if you feel like you need to jeer or cheer to not do that or applaud. Uh, let's just hear what each of us have to say. Also, we have para-ministries who are here. So during the breaks, uh, you can go. We're going to show some spots about them. That's uh, Talking with Mormons, uh, Talking to Mormons, Conversations and Hope, Ex-Mormon Files with Earl Erskine, and Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. So these ministries will be represented in the children's room, so go back in there uh, and talk to them. Finally, as an FYI, next week on Heart of the Matter, Tuesday night, uh, we're going to have Sam Young from Texas. He is the bishop, former bishop of the Mormon Church, who has started a petition to get the LDS Church to stop interviewing children about sexual practices behind closed doors. And uh, he's going to be here with us, and we look forward to that. So with that, take a quick look at this. Hey, let me take a minute and tell you where we started. The ministry began with an outreach to Mormons, Latter-day Saints. We had a live weekly call-in television program, and we covered everything that had to do with Mormonism, A to Z. We've got three first-time callers. We're going to Jacob in Logan. Jacob, you're on Heart of the Matter. You can access all of those shows, nearly 400 of them, by going to YouTube and just typing in Heart of the Matter, Sean McCraney, or going to our own website at hotm.tv. We also have launched HOTM 2.0. We're not talking about Mormonism anymore. We're talking about everything Christian, and you're watching one of those shows tonight. We also teach the Bible verse by verse. We do a milk and we do a meat service every Sunday, and we go through the books of the Bible. We also have books available. You can get those through PDF, download, hard copies, some audio, HOTM.TV. We've got about six or seven books out there that are free to you, and we hope you'll check that out. We boldly, humbly, but boldly claim that our approach to the faith is, is the best on the face of the earth. Now, I say that with a smile, but we challenge you, we challenge anyone to prove otherwise using the Bible as their guide. Our reasons for this are pretty straightforward, and when applied to individuals, it does nothing but release them from religious manipulation. You know, we're looking for seekers who will reject any and every type of religious tradition if it's not contextually supported by scripture. If you love your religious prejudices and your traditions, uh, you don't want to have anything to do with us. But if you're a seeker who really wants to know God in spirit and truth supported by what the Bible says and not what men say, come and join us.
Okay, with that, uh, we're going to hear uh, the pleasure of hearing from uh, James White. He's going to have uh, no more than 45 minutes to speak to you. And uh, after that, we're going to take a short break, and then I'll come back and speak to you. And then after that, James and I will sit and talk and, and converse and, and hear what each other have to say. Would you, uh, would you mind when you stand? I don't mean to put you on the side. I should have asked you this, James, to pray. Uh, and you stand and go for it. Okay. All right, brother. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. That good, Seth? <laughs> Only the <laughs> finest equipment in this place. Can you help him with that? Thanks, Seth. You don't want that to fall on you there. Wow, look at the glare. That is horrible. <laughs> That's what I call white and delightful. <laughs> 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 right. Only a few people got that. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, the, they're the ones that use the newer Book of Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, been coming up here a long time. Uh, when did you When did you leave? Uh, well, I left officially 2001. 97, born again. Okay, so. We were passing out tracks. Uh, my first trip up here outside the temple was 83. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and we started doing the general conferences, I think, in 85, if I recall correctly. Uh, so, uh, did you ever walk past us? Uh, did I could have. You might, it might have been just one of those little, little young guys. Uh, yeah. No, actually, probably, a bit older than me. Probably flipping you off or something. Uh, well, that did happen. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, the first time I was up here, I'll just tell a story before we get started. Uh, it wasn't conference. We didn't even know what conference was. But um, uh, it was a warm May day, and I was dying of thirst. And so is the Howard Johnson still across uh, yeah, on the other side? Yeah, but they've closed it. Uh, okay, well, uh, I was going over to get a drink. I was dying. And uh, this uh, guy had come out from doing temple work, and, and we're walking across uh, North Temple, and I try to hand him a tract. And uh, he looks at it you know, and, and does the immediate, you know, the wrist, it's just automatic. It's, it's a genetic thing, I think. You just, <laughs> who, who wrote this? And sees that it's a Christian tract, and he just looks at me while we're walking along. And he says, go to hell. Wow. And I looked right back at him, and I said, sir, according to your theology, I can't. Yeah. And he, he knew I was right, so he was just really angry about that. Wow. Uh, just really, I'm not sure that it really reached him or anything, but it, <clears throat> it did. It did. Planted a seed. It's planted a seed, yeah. So um, I'm going to take a few moments and speak to you about a certain aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what we're here to discuss, but I've been asked to um, open with prayer, and so I would like to do that. Um, Heavenly Father, we do ask that during this time, uh, you would be honored and glorified, your truth would be honored and glorified. Uh, Lord, that you would grant understanding of what you have revealed uh, to your honor and glory and to our benefit. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I am going to this evening. Normally, this would not be how I would do things. I would like to tell you a few stories, uh, you know, tell you a little about myself and uh, normally talk about my grandkids or something just to endear myself to you along those lines. But we don't have time for that. We have a limited amount of time and some very, very important things to get to. So I ask your forgiveness for asking you to dive directly with me into the Word of God. But uh, as was just said, 
the, the assertion has already been made, so I don't have to make it. Uh, we need to go with what is found in Scripture. Let me start off by saying I am a biblical Trinitarian. What I mean by that is I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity because someone in the past formulated it and there is this big long tradition. Don't get me wrong. I think God has always had his people. I think it is very, very important for us to look back upon what those before us have said. It doesn't make them my authorities, but it also means that I recognize that I'm not the first person who's possessed the Spirit of God. And therefore, I think it is, there's great wisdom in looking back at previous generations, hearing what they had to say critically, recognizing that they made errors, they had blind spots, but there's much wisdom to be found in what they had to say as well. And we all, whether we recognize it or not, stand upon the shoulders of giants. The terminology that we will even use to discuss this subject this evening came to us through many centuries of discussion, and we need to know where that came from. And so, but the important thing is, I am a biblical Trinitarian, and this is, what I, this is why I say this. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe He has preserved it. I believe, as Jesus said, that it is God speaking. Remember when He said to the Sadducees, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? Jesus, I think we need to have as high a view of Scripture as Jesus did. And sadly, as a person who has taught in many seminaries and universities around the world, very few people today have the same high view of Scripture that Jesus himself had. I want to have that view of Scripture. And what that means is, as Jesus believed that all of Scripture was consistent with itself, so I too believe that when you consistently look at all that Scripture says, it teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity. It does so by teaching us that there's one true God, that there are three distinct persons, that's what we're going to have to focus on, and the equality of those persons. And so when we talk to the Mormons, we're constantly quoting Isaiah 43.10 and 44.6-8 and all these other texts that teach very plainly that there is only one true God. In Hebrew, the name used in the Old Testament over 6,000 times is Yahweh. We slaughter that in English as Jehovah. That's not how it could have been uh, pronounced by the Jewish people. But Yahweh is probably the best pronunciation of the divine name. But there is one true God. He's the creator of all things. He is eternal. He does not have a beginning. There is one true God. And yet, and this is the subject another, and plainly teaches that the Son and the Spirit, as well as the Father, have eternally existed as divine persons in relationship with one another. And then the Bible teaches that those three persons all share one divine name of Yahweh. That is the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit. We come to the New Testament writers and they will, they will quote from Isaiah 43 where it's Yahweh that lays our sins upon the Messiah. Well, that's the Father. And yet, the same person elsewhere will take the same passages about Yahweh and apply them to the Son. John chapter 12. Who was it that Isaiah saw sitting upon the throne, lofty and lifted up? According to John 12, 41, it was Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, a quotation of Psalm 102, 25 through 27, specifically about Yahweh as the unchanging creator, applied to Jesus. And who is the Spirit of the Lord but the Spirit of Yahweh, the one divine name used of three persons. And so when you take everything that Scripture teaches, one God, three persons, the equality of the persons, what do you have? The historic doctrine of the Trinity. But the issue this evening, and I, again, it's going to be up to Sean to 
express specifically where he stands right now, because I don't think he's going to argue that between the time he left Mormonism and today, he's held the exact same position. There has been development, there has been uh, change, and so I'm going to let him define for himself where he is right now. But over the past couple of years, I have seen clips where Sean has specifically said, I am a convinced modalist. Okay, the problem is there's all sorts of different forms of modalism, even today. Uh, I've taught church history since the 1990s, and if you go back in church history, you have various forms of dynamic monarchianism and modalistic monarchianism and Sabellianism, and, you got, and they, they have their subtle differences. And today, you've got the UPCI, and I've done a number of debates with various folks who promote the specific perspective of someone like Bernard, one of the leading scholars for the UPCI. And so, all I can do right now is be general until, uh, until Sean gives us a specific uh, issue with what I have to say, and then we can discuss that. That's, that's why we're here, and that's why we're going longer than we normally do. I want to ask you to look at three texts with me. I'm going to have to be fast. I'm sorry. But I want you to look with me at three texts that I believe, in their context, applying, and this is very important, applying the same form of hermeneutics, of interpretation, that we would use to establish that there is only one true God, that we would use to establish the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These types of central issues, applying the same form of hermeneutics to these texts, teaches us that the Son, as a divine person, eternally existed in the presence of the Father and in fellowship with Him. If that is true, if the Son and the Father have eternally been in relationship with one another, using personal pronouns of one another, you, me, being active together, doing the things that persons do, and yet both are identified as Yahweh, that's exactly what the doctrine of the Trinity states. One being of God shared by three divine persons. And so this is the key issue. Let's go, let's go to a text that most of us have memorized, most of us know, John chapter 1, verse 1. Here in John 1, 1, John gives us a prologue, the first 18 verses. And in verse 1, he lays out for us some very important facts about the logos, the word. He says, in the beginning was the word, and he uses the verb there that he doesn't use elsewhere in the prologue when he talks about John, when he talks about creation. There he uses a verb that talks about things coming into being. Here he uses a verb that does not speak of something having a beginning, but simply speaks of, each, of existence in the past. And so, in the beginning was the word, states that the word is eternal. As far back as you want to push the beginning, the word is already in existence. The word is eternal. That's John 1.1a. John 1.1b says, and the word was prostontheon, with God, face to face with God. God. Same verb, so it's an eternal relationship that is being referred to here. So the first phrase tells us the Logos is eternal. The second phrase tells us that the Logos has eternally been in relationship with God. Now, in the first verse, you don't have an identification of who we're referring to here as Father, Son, or anything like that. That's going to come along later on. In fact, verse 18 is the bookend. It's the mirror image of verse 1, and it's specifically going to identify this God as the Father. But we'll get to that in a moment. And so the assertion is the loss 
was face-to-face -face with God, in relationship with God. And then the third clause, as you know, this is a big argument with Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door on a Saturday morning. I suggest you not get into that argument with them uh, first, first thing on a Saturday morning. Um, they're not listening to you, and you're probably not going to make much headway with them. The Word was God. Now, if the assertion was that all of the Word is all of God, and all of the God is all of the Word, then both of them would have the, what's called the Greek article. But that's not what John writes. If John was a modalist, he would have put kai ha theos ein ha logos, but that's not what he put. He puts only one article, which identifies the logos as the subject of the sentence. He puts, it, puts the word theos, God, before the verb, which describes the nature of the logos. The point of the third clause is the logos is as to his nature, deity. This is what he tells us in John 1.1. 1, 1. So what is the point? The logos who is going to become flesh, it's the Logos who becomes flesh in verse 14, who is described as the unique God, monogenes theos in verse 18, who is in the bosom of the Father, who explains him, exegetes him, makes him known, that Logos was eternally theon in relationship with God. Not merely an idea, not merely a plan, this is utilization of terminology of personhood two persons in relationship with one another but John didn't leave us with just that if you'll turn with me or tap on over I guess that's how things are done these days that's what I'm doing to verse 5 of chapter 17 John chapter 17 verse 5 there's so much that we could say here but again time is very short and I want to be very clear especially with the third text that we'll look at here in Jesus's the real Lord's Prayer I mean let's be honest um, the Lord's Prayer that most of us are familiar with is the model prayer that Jesus taught us to pray as disciples. This is Jesus' prayer as high priest. This is how Jesus prays. And in addressing the Father, in verse 5, we have amazing words. They're amazing. If you've grown up in the church, you know who Jesus is. You sort of get used to hearing words like this. But you've just got to think about how astounding these words really are. Listen to what Jesus says. And now you glorify me, Father, together with yourself, with the glory which I had in your presence before the world was. Now, I do a lot of debating with Muslims around the world. I've stood in the Juma Masjid in Durban, South Africa. It used to be the largest mosque in the southern hemisphere of the globe. And with uh, a huge audience of Muslims have defended the deity of Christ in that context. And believe me, they don't believe Jesus would ever have said these types of, these types of things. No way. Not possible. We've heard these words, but we need to step back and listen to them more carefully. And now you glorify me, Father. Glorify me. What, what mere prophet could ever say something like that? What created being could, in addressing God, say, you glorify me? And we know he's addressing the Father. The word's right there. You glorify me, Father, together with yourself, with the glory which I had literally by your side. It's the same type of terminology that's used back there in John 1.18. 
by in the in the father's at the father's side that that unique position that personal position would be his the glory which i had in your presence before the world was now do you hear the words of jesus he's using personal pronouns of himself and of the father of himself and of the father is that how many minutes I've used or how many minutes I've got left? Okay, I was going to say, that's the fastest, fastest uh, the 30 minutes I've ever gone through. That's, that's pretty good. Um, he's using, it, if, if you and I were speaking, and I referred to you as you, and I said to you, remember when you and I went to such and such a place together, um, I, I've come over here uh, while I'm doing my races in, uh, in July. I race over in Colorado, do bike races over there at high altitudes. And so sometimes, since there's like two weeks between my races, I'll come over here and I'll train uh, over on the, these mountains over here, going up Guardsman Pass, Alta, you know, those are some pretty decent, uh, pretty decent climbs on a bike. And so if, if, I, if one of you is a cyclist, and I said, do you remember when you and I rode up to the top of Guardsman Pass together? And I used the word you and I. No one would think that we were the same person. There's clear differentiation. And yet you have a person addressing another person about the glory which the two persons shared together when? Before the world was created. Before the world was created. This is a divine person speaking to another divine person about the glory that those two divine persons shared before the world was. Now we know from the Old Testament revelation that God does not share his glory with another. Yahweh says, I will not share my glory with another. So if the Son speaks to the Father and says to the Father, glorify me with the glory which I had in your presence, why, why wouldn't he have that glory now? Well, the third text is really going to explain that very clearly, but this is the incarnation. Jesus laid aside that pre-incarnate glory that he had when Jesus walked down the streets of Jerusalem at night, he didn't glow. I mean, that would have made his arguments a whole lot easier, but that's not how God wanted us to follow him. He had to lay aside certain, the exercise of certain divine prerogatives and privileges so as to fulfill his purpose as the Messiah to be able to give his life so that the justice of God would be fulfilled so that God could be merciful to his people and yet remain just, remain holy. We don't often think about how important that is, but again, I deal a lot with, with Islam. In Islam, God can just simply forgive sins. His law can remain broken, no atonement, no nothing. And this is one of my main arguments against Islam, is that the nature of God becomes violated. God's law is reflection of his nature. And so Christ had to provide a perfect propitiatory sacrifice for us to be able to have peace with him. And so to do that, he had to lay aside the exercise of some of those privileges, which includes the, 
being the object of the worship of, uh, of the heavenly host and everything else. But now that he's preparing to return back into the presence of the Father, he says specifically, glorify me with the glory which I had in your presence before the world was. This is one divine person speaking to another divine person about their shared experience of being glorified before time was. This is the same concept as John 1.1. So you might say, okay, well, we've got John. We have John specifically laying this out. Is there anything else? Well, there is, and I want to spend most of my time on this. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. There are some great Christological passages in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. But probably one of the greatest is right here in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 5 or 6, you may notice in some of your translations that probably with verse 6, it may be laid out in poetic form in your translation. The reason for this is many scholars, and I agree with this, Many scholars believe that what we have in verses 6 to 11 is a fragment of an ancient hymn of the church. And if it is, I wish I could see the Jerusalem hymn book because it must have been incredibly rich, incredibly deep. Not like a lot of the songs we've got today that are all about, you know, Jesus is my girlfriend, boyfriend type thing. Uh, these were in-depth, deep, theological uh, confessional statements. If it wasn't him, it was at least an early creedal statement. But the important thing to remember is that verses 5 through 11 are a sermon illustration. Paul is in the middle of exhorting the church at Philippi to act in humility of mind toward one another. This is the key about how to maintain peace within the local fellowship. Don't look to your own things only. Look to others. Put others, treat others as more important than yourself. Humility of mind is having certain rights, but laying them aside in the service of others. And so what would be the greatest example that could be given of that kind of humility? But Jesus himself. And so verse 5 says, have this attitude, this mindset, amongst you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is that mindset? He had, he had mentioned it up in verse 3. Humility of mind. This is the mindset you're to have amongst yourself. So that becomes the, the, the context in which we must interpret the song itself. What does it say? Who existing in the form of God. And I would argue in light of the form of the participle there, uh, when I, I, I wrote an article on this for the CRI Journal, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago now. And I translated it as eternally existing in the form of God because of the context that is going to be given um, regarding the equality with God that the Son had, so on and so forth. But that is an uh, interpretive uh, addition, translate as you will. But who existing in the form of God, this is how I would render it, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto at all costs, but rather made himself of no re reputation by taking the form of a servant, 
by being made in the likeness of men. Now, most of the interpretational issues are right there in those two verses. Because there are a lot of people who will say, no, 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 what, what's going on here is Jesus isn't equal with God the Father. He's not giving consideration to trying to become equal with God the Father, but instead empties himself. And that is the literal meaning of the, the Greek word there, is to empty. Problem is, Paul never uses it literally. Every single time he uses this term, kanao, in his writings, it's always metaphorical. He says, I do not want my labor amongst you to become empty. Well, that's not literally, you know, the bottom falls out and everything leaks. It means without fruit, without, fruit, without any type of lasting value. And so they would say what's being said here is Jesus wasn't equal with the Father, or the Son wasn't equal with the Father, uh, but instead he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Now, I want to come back to resolving that after we look at the rest of the song, the rest of the, of, the, of the section. And being found, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself. There's that term, very same term that's used up in verse 3. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, and then I would translate this literally, even the cross death. We normally say even the death of the cross, but the, the term to crucify, there were certain ancient writers that found that concept so repulsive, they would not even use this word. They considered it a dirty word. It was such a horrible way to die. No Roman citizen could die by crucifixion. Even if you stabbed Caesar, you still would not be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. And so... There is, a, there is a stigma to crucifixion. And so I think that's why, he, why it is rendered the way it is. Even the cross death. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and gave to him the name, the above all other names, in order that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow those in heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that kurios Jesus Christos, kurios Jesus Christos, Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is there first. We normally translate Jesus Christ as Lord. But the first word is kurios, which was the exact word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to render the name of Yahweh. And when we look at Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he actually takes the Shema, the, the confession prayer of every Jew. Every Jew every morning would get up and he would say, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And Paul took that prayer in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and expanded it in light of the incarnation. And that's when he says, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, kurios, one Lord Jesus Christ, using the exact same words from the Greek translation of the Old Testament that are found in Deuteronomy 6.4, where the Shema is found. Here you have kurios being used of Jesus. That's what he's normally referred to. Every tongue will confess that 
Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. That's where it ends, and immediately Paul goes right back into the application to the Philippian believers of how they are to walk in humility of mind toward one another, because he's given the greatest example. Now, what do we do with this text? Well, first of all, in regards to the controversy over what the first two verses mean, context is always king. Context is always our greatest friend in understanding what a text is. Let's think about the two possibilities. And I, I like to use an illustration from my own experience. I was explaining this text to two pioneer Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm not sure if you know what a pioneer Jehovah's Witness is, but a pioneer goes door to door 30 hours a week minimum. So that's a Jehovah's Witness, okay? I mean, that is, uh, that's the real Jehovah's Witnesses right there. And we were sitting in a friend of mine's front room, and we were looking at the text, and even though the New World Translation just renders this horribly, I mean, the, the NWT is such a horrible translation of the Bible. It's like chewing on aluminum foil. It is just, uh, just, oh. And they actually render one of the things here. He did not give consideration to a seizure, namely to be equal with God. Isn't that great? Isn't that just, uh, just this flows right off the tongue? You know? And we were looking at it, and they were going, no, 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 it's saying he wasn't equal with God. And I said, let me, let me ask you something. Remember, this is supposed to be an illustration of humility of mind. So which one is an illustration of humility of mind? Your view is that it's saying that Jesus was Michael the archangel, because that's what they believed Jesus was. Jesus was Michael the archangel pre-incarnate. And Michael the archangel did not try to become equal with Jehovah. And that is our illustration of humility, is a creature not trying to become equal with the creator. And they stopped and they thought, and I said, there is someone in the Bible that it seems did try to become equal with God. Remember, his name was uh, Lucifer, Satan. Yeah, there you go. That's not humility. That's just not committing blasphemy. But what if it is saying that the Son eternally existed in the form of God, but did not consider that equality he had with God the Father, something to be held on to at all costs, but in humility of mind, having certain rights, but laying them aside in the service of others, he made himself of no reputation by taking on a perfect human nature by receiving the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of men, and therefore being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. That is humility of mind. Well, I'll never forget that pioneer Jehovah's Witness is sitting there looking at the Bible, and it was almost like that Bible had become a, a serpent in their lap. They saw it. They realized it. Now, when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, you, they won't take books from you, they won't take tracts from you, not one in a million, but, but the vast majority of them will not. But I've never had a Jehovah's Witness leave their Bible behind. And that's why I like to show them the truth in the Scriptures, because they will take that with them. And in those quiet times, the Spirit of God can, can deal with them and reveal things to them. And so, 
that's really the answer to the beginning of this text, and that is, if this is an illustration of humility, then it is saying that the Son existed in the form of God, had equality with the Father, but did not consider that equality something to be grasped or held onto at all costs, but, and here's the relevance for us this evening, verse 7, but literally emptied himself. Now again, like I said, it doesn't use the term emptied literally that way. Himself, it's a reflexive pronoun. This is something Jesus did. This is something Jesus does. Same thing in verse 8. Humbled himself. Reflexive pronoun. Only people, persons, can perform actions that require reflexive pronoun. So, if receiving the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, is the incarnation, which I believe very plainly it is, then what you have in the song is a person acting prior to the incarnation. What are the actions? First of all, considering something. He did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped at all costs. Only persons can give consideration to things. Plans can't give consideration. Rocks can't give consideration. Only persons can engage in the action of the verb of verse 6. And the same way, only persons can engage in the action of making themselves of no reputation, emptying themselves, reflective pronoun, beginning of verse 7. And so what we have that is directly relevant to our situation this evening in regards to the concept of modalism is if you say that you do not have divine persons, then you're going to need to explain why it is the New Testament has revealed to us a divine person who became incarnate as Jesus Christ, who was in eternal fellowship with the Father, John 1.1, proston theon, who addresses the Father with personal pronouns referring to the time in eternity past when he was glorious together with the Father, John 17.5, who does not, give, does not consider that the equality he has with the Father is something to be held on to at all costs, Philippians 2.6, and who acts in his own incarnation. Yes, he's sent by the Father, but just as in the resurrection, look through the New Testament, Father raises Jesus, Jesus takes his life back, he's raised by the Spirit of God. Triune action is taking place there. But in this, he empties himself. He voluntarily engages in this activity of incarnation and submits himself to the Father, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That that is the meaning of the text is borne out by the conclusion of the text. Because did you notice something? Not only is he given the name which is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now, any Jewish person who knew their Tanakh, their Bible, Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, the writings. 
any Jewish person who knew that in Greek, which would be, well, the people of Philippi, um, any of the, the uh, you know, Lydia, remember, and, and those that knew the scriptures, they would immediately know what was being said here because that's the exact language of the Greek Septuagint about Yahweh. Yahweh says in the prophecy of Isaiah, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess. And here, the Christian revelation found in verse 11, what is the, what is the essence of what that confession is? Every tongue will confess that, kurios Jesus Christus, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is not something that makes Jesus some separate deity who is in competition with the Father. That's what Jesus warned us against and corrected against in John chapter 5. When Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, remember his response to the accusation of the Jews against him was, my father is working until now, and I am working. He differentiates himself from the Father, and he does so in the context of upholding creation. And so it says the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he loosed the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father in an intimate, special way, making himself equal with God. What was Jesus' response? The Son can do nothing of himself except what he sees the Father doing. So there is perfect unity between the Father and the Son. The Son's not off doing his own thing. The Son's not off trying to get his own worshipers separate from the Father. He has been sent by the Father. He has sub submitted himself to the will of the Father voluntarily, all so that the Father, Son, and Spirit can accomplish the glorification of Yahweh in the salvation of a special people in and through Jesus Christ. And the, those who are saved are those who are united to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 1, 10 times in the first 13 verses. In Him, in Christ, in the Beloved One, this is where we have forgiveness, this is where we have eternal life, this is why He must be the God-man, this is why Jesus cannot merely be some kind of just a prophet or a, a person with a specially elevated sense of morality or ethics, to do what he did, he has to be the God-man. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2, 9. But that does not mean he is some separate deity off doing his own thing and drawing out worshipers for himself separate from the Father. And even as you have the perfect balance in John 5, the same perfect balance is found here in verse 11. What we confess is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we confess that, it is to the glory of God the Father. Now, why is this important? In that same text in John chapter 5, Jesus said, this is so that all men would honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you do not honor the Father who sent him. And in 1 John chapter 2, you have a discussion of what happened in the early church. There were people who went out from the early church, and they were the, what we would call proto-Gnostics. They denied that Jesus Christ had come the flesh. He only seemed to have a body. They're called docetists. Dakine means to seem. And so Jesus could just sort of have a body when he wanted to have one, and, and then not when he didn't want to. 
And John tells us that these are the antichrists. He says, many antichrists have gone out from us. And then he makes that statement in 1 John chapter 2. And he argues, you can't claim to have the Father if you don't have the Son. Now that the incarnation has taken place, now that God has testified of Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead, now that there is an empty tomb sitting there, you can no longer say, well, I'm just going to go with the old ways. I'm not going to worry about any of that kind of stuff. No. God has done something absolutely definitive in Jesus Christ. And we are faced with the reality of having to deal with what God has done in him. We can't just go, well, I'm just going to remain neutral. There's no neutrality to this. There's no way to be neutral to an empty tomb. Either he is Lord or he's not. And so this statement is made, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. So who is the Son? In the UPCI formulation, okay, in the UPCI formulation, and I don't know, and I, I, I don't think from what I've heard that this is what you believe. I don't think. But the official UPCI formulation is that the Son began his existence in Bethlehem. And so Jesus was actually two persons. He was a human being who came into existence in Bethlehem, who was indwelt by God the Father. So Jesus' prayer life was his human side speaking to his divine side. So it was an internal conversation. And then, after the resurrection, the Father now takes the role of the Spirit. So in UPCI theology, you only have one divine person who has been the Father, indwelt the Son, but the Son is separate, and who is now acting as the Holy Spirit. That's one form of modalism. Classically, modalism in the past has been God manifesting himself in different ways. Why was it that the first teaching that was condemned by the formal church was not Arianism. It was not a denial of the deity of Christ. That's Council of Nicaea, 325. Over a hundred years earlier than that was modalism. It's modalism. Why? Who is the Son? Who is the one who intercedes for us, for every believer in Jesus Christ tonight? Has he eternally existed as a divine person in the presence of the Father in glory? Or has he not? There's a huge difference between those two. There's a huge difference between those two. So I hope we can be really focused upon what really matters. You might say, wow, that's awful deep. If it was given to us in 1 John, in the Gospel of John, if it's one of the first things that John tells us in his Gospel, then what that means is the New Testament writers and, of course, the Spirit of God that motivated them believed it was very important for us to know. And from my perspective, it's a gift of grace to us. It's a gift of grace to us to have such knowledge of our God because God wants us to worship him how? In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And so, why do, why has the church down through the ages 
confess the doctrine of the Trinity. It's right there in, in the text before us. And so I really hope that if we have disagreements this evening, they will be focused upon what the text says, not anything else. I, I will right now uh, grant to Sean the supremacy in being able to grow hair. Um, supremacy in being able to do videos of himself in the middle of the train track. Uh, or anything else. I couldn't, I, I bow, I cannot, I can't do it. <laughs> you got me. But you know what, it's not about me and him. It, tonight should not be about either one of us. It should be about God's truth. And I hope that it will be. Thank you very much. Let's Take a five-minute break uh, for our ins uh, audience, and we'll show some spots. If you don't need to use the restroom or get food. Hey, check out some of the para-ministries we either host or fully support. Conversations on Hope is a ministry that my sister Heidi started when she was diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer. Welcome to our conversation. I'm Heidi, and I'm here with my dear friend Jan. Sadly, she passed away from that disease, but before she passed, she asked if I would carry it on for her. Conversations on Hope is a ministry where we give a voice to those who have battled through tremendous hardships and how they have clung on to hope that get, got them through their most difficult seasons. We believe that there is power in our stories, and sharing our stories of hope with others provides strength, encouragement, community, and most of all, healing. And many times, in an odd way, despite life's bumps and bruises, we find wonderful and beautiful blessings that we receive amidst the suffering. Our guests are never the same once they have walked through the fire of adversity, but they do make it through, and we explore the hope that sustains them and the hope that heals them in our conversations on hope. Hello friends, my name is Warren Puckett and I've got a little show called Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. And what my show is all about is a relationship. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ and not a religion or a membership in a denomination or a religion. This year, 2018, 10 years ago, actually in February of uh, 2008, that's when I had a type of year of Jubilee. It's when I was set free set free from religious bondage and came into a personal saving relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and found out the truth about being uh, set free by the grace and mercy of God. And I just want to invite you, if you don't have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ or if you're struggling along in the denomination or the religion that you belong to, I want to let you know in the name of Jesus that you can have that personal relationship with Him one-on-one -on -one without the religion. So He just wants you individually to come to Him and your life will be changed. So check me out. You can find me on YouTube. Like I said, Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett and I will also be on Sean McCraney's website. Hi, I'm former LDS Bishop Earl Erskine. I've been out of the church almost seven years. And in late 2011, Sean McCraney asked me if I'd consider interviewing former LDS for a show that became known as The Ex-Mormon Files. I've been privileged to interview nearly 300 former Mormons. 
Almost every one of these courageous people say they know more about Mormonism now than they ever did before. Their tender stories tell how they came to know the biblical Jesus and their understanding of true grace. And you can find these interviews at exmormonfiles.com, on a Google search, on YouTube, and on Roku TV. I want to introduce you to our guest, Elder Smith. He's serving a full-time mission with the LDS Church. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, take a second and tell the audience why, as missionaries, you are willing to participate in these Talking to Mormons episodes. Sure. My companion, Elder Young, and I saw the value of having an open religious dialogue with our Christian friend, Chris, about the teachings and doctrines of Mormonism and Christianity. Aren't you uh, opening yourselves up to challenges that might be brought about by this Christian believer? Perhaps, but we have an agreement with Chris that we would be willing to talk about any gospel topic related to church history, past and present teachings of our church leaders and Mormon scriptures, and compare them with what the Bible says. Aren't you worried that these conversations will get heated and combative? Actually, the viewers will find that these respectful and open conversations between Christians and Mormons are quite possible. It will be a great source for anyone wanting to better understand Mormonism and Christianity. Huh, it sounds intriguing. I want to encourage everyone to check them out on their YouTube channel in the description below. All right, welcome back and... Uh... I want to thank James. Uh, I, learned a, I learned a lot uh, from him. And uh, I'll just say before I start talking from these notes I took, um, I agree with him on m most things. And that's not fair to him because he doesn't, he doesn't watch every show that we do and he doesn't know the, the progress that uh, uh, I've made in understanding our God. Um, I am still, I guess, and, and maybe James and I, when we talk, he can, he can tell me what I am, but uh, I, uh, I am, I guess, a modalist because I believe there is one God, and from the one God, his word became flesh, and uh, co-eternal, co-equal, uh, his word is his word, his word became flesh. What that looks like, I don't know, that his spirit is the Holy Spirit. I believe in three. I believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe in co-eternality in all of them. My issue is with persons. I, now, to, to make it even more difficult, I believe that the three have three separate minds from the Greek. Um, but I equate that to me, being made in God's image, that I have a body and I have a soul and I have a spirit, and my body in the morning doesn't want to get out of bed, 
And my spirit says, get out of bed and read the scripture. And my soul says, get out of bed and go to Denny's and have breakfast. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a mind of each of them, but it all comes from me. And, that's that, and, and, and I am willing to let James uh, show me, but I have to explain why I don't see it. Uh, I forced myself to do something tonight. I've done over a thousand hour-long uh, programs, but I forced myself to do something under the auspices of the name Showdown. Showdown, I love plays on words and how people get all riled up about them. Showdown did not mean a gunfight. Showdown meant that the stuff we usually do with a show and, you know, presenting and doing all the stuff was going to go down. And so I had a conversation with uh, my one daughter, and, and, and it was just, so I decided tonight I wasn't going to come with, with notes about what to say or do. I was going to listen to James, and I was going to write then and there, based on what he said, to try to explain my purpose. Um, on Facebook, his Facebook today, it said that uh, there will be a debate and, um, and someone wrote on there, what's the debate about? And someone said, over the Trinity. And I, I really cannot emphasize this enough. While I personally don't see the Trinity like James sees it when he studies, when I study, and I, I try to study, and I consult the Greek, and I look at everything too, I don't see the same explanation of God. The important point to me is that I'm allowed to express that. And that I'm allowed as a sold out follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father but through the Son. Faith on Him, His shed blood, must be born again. I, there, I don't see what James sees. And I have to ask myself, why is that? Now, you can come up with several reasons. You could come up with the internet reasons. I'm a demon. And I don't have the capacity to understand godly things. Why? He's just a, a cult leader. He's just a charlatan. And he doesn't spend his time really studying. It's my fault, right? So there, you can go with that one, or you can go that I haven't been born again, that I claim to have been born again, but I don't have spiritual eyes, and so I don't have the capacity to see what the Scripture is saying, and therefore I'll never come to understand the Trinity because I don't have the spiritual eyes to see it. You know, and, and then we can go on with all the reasons why I can't understand the Trinity the way my smart, educated, intelligent, Brethren, and I call them my brothers, see our God. I wonder how much, in all honesty, God is my witness. It matters. Now, I know to scholars and to ardent Trinitarians, it's everything. Boy, it's everything. But in my experience as a human being on this earth, talking with people who differ on things like the Trinity, 
and things not. They might agree with the Trinity, but differ on other things. In my experience, these things have been used to divide God-fearing, God-loving, Jesus-seeking people for far too long. I don't think most Christians can explain the Trinity. I'm a fairly smart guy. I listen to James. I think he dumbs it down for an audience like this. Not you guys, but me. And I couldn't follow everything. And yet, when I read the scripture, I still don't see what he's trying to explain and what I can follow. To try to go against James with the scripture, this is what it says, and I say, I don't think it's saying that, is as old as the Reformation. It has happened for 500 years. It's happened for probably closer to 1900 years where the text becomes the source of battlegrounds. And we kill each other over interpretation. What we're really killing each other over is opinion. I have my opinions. They're not right, all of them, many of them. And I clearly say, this is my opinion. This is how I see it. James, in what he presented here, and he may be right. Understand, I admit he may be right. It's still his opinion. Why can I say that? Because there are other people who love God, who search the scriptures, who follow Christ, who don't agree with James. There's a whole denomination out there that doesn't agree with him. He can say, well, I have history on my side and we have this interpretation of scripture. But in the end, we are talking about opinions. We all have them. And the question is, it's really funny. Do, when someone has a belief that's different than our belief, that in God's name, in Christ's name, we will justify all sorts of heinous stuff. We will not shake hands. We will not fellowship. We will not agree that they're Christian. We'll say they're going to hell. But we don't really under... The, the guys who helped create the Trinity, uh, Gregory of uh, Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa was one of the guys who took Aristotle and he said, listen, we're going to use Aristotle's model on, on categories and, and this and that, and we're going to help describe the Trinity, said, this way we have used is a wonderful thing. It, it's going to help people understand God better. But here's the danger of what we've done. I don't have the quote, but he, you can look it up. Gregory of Nyssa said, here's the danger of what we've done. We're going to get men to think they understand God. We're going to let men think that they can actually describe him. Now, when I read the scripture and it says the word was made flesh, I agree with that. But I have no idea what that means. I don't know what God's words looked like before uh, he, uh, when he spoke everything into existence. I don't know if they were a human form. I don't know if, what his mind looked like. What does God look like? How do we interpret what it says about his person 
when it, we don't have that information in Scripture. So we use models to help us along. Again, the, the Aristotelian model may be correct, but it might not be either. It might not be complete. And because, for me, I see gaps that don't make sense to me, I want the right to be able to share that openly and honestly as a Christian and to be loved by my brothers and sisters. That's been refused. And that's just the topic of the Trinity. I won't go into the other stuff. What the heck is wrong with us? This is a, this is a group of believers, people who do believe, who pursue God and want to emulate Christ and love him for what he's done and they will treat each other over things we don't fully understand because they believe their opinion is right and that opinion is wrong. Modalist, some of it makes sense to me, some of it not. Sabellianist modalism, monarchism, no, some, yeah, yeah, no. Binitary, uh, sometimes the binity makes a great deal of sense to me. When I, when I read that in every one of Paul's introductions to his epistles, he mentions God the Father, God the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ, but he never mentions the third person. Not once. He never mentions the Holy Spirit. Poor Holy Spirit. Third person of the Godhead doesn't get any attention. Now, I'm not telling you that I'm reading that perfectly. I'm just telling you what I see. And so when I see it, I say, how come the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in the introduction when God and his son get mentioned every time? And so things like that start adding up in my life, in my mind. We're on the same page with a few exceptions. And in our question and answer time, I'm hoping James can help answer my questions. Now, you might say, well, you don't deserve to be teaching if you don't stand on, on everything. See, here's another problem with what we've created, is that you can, you can enter into Christianity in two ways. You can enter it and say, I'm going to enter it this way. This is what I'm taught. This is the tradition. This is what everyone has said. This is what I'll repeat. And this is what it means to be a Christian. That's the objective way to understand the faith. Or you can say, I'm going to enter into the faith. Oh, I, I, was, I was taught this. Okay, I believe. Well, wait a minute. I find out that's not right. And you change your mind. And you just say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't, that doesn't work in my mind anymore. Now, the objectivists for religion say, that is wrong. No one should be changing their mind about things. But I got to tell you, if you're not changing your mind about things as a Christian, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your study. There's something wrong with your walk. You got to figure out why you are just, you know, horse things on <laughs> toward the carrot, heaven the carrot, but you don't stop and think, well, wait a second. And so that's why we are so big on challenge what you've been taught. Look at orthodoxy. Consider what has been said. It may be right. Let me tell you something here. And when I meet people, who, most people are Trinitarians. They just say they're a Trinitarian. And they're welcome in my life. And if I meet a modalist, they're welcome in my life. And if a Benetarian, if I meet a, a oneness Pentecostal, 
They're my brother in Christ. If I meet a Mormon who says that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, and they do not get to God but by his shed blood, they are my brother or sister. Now we say no. No, let's just separate it. You have to fight that. You have to debate it. They need to read, they need to understand the objective faith. I can see the faults in Mormonism, believe me. But it doesn't mean the people don't have a grasp on something of Christ. It doesn't mean the Catholics don't have a grasp on something of Christ. So, in my mind, the negligible differences is, is, is huge. They can be negligible and it can be this wide. I am not preaching ecumenism. I'm not preaching all roads lead to God. I'm not preaching that my way is the right way. I'm saying that we need a new era if we're going to survive against this world where the body comes together and stops majoring in the minors. We need to major in the majors. Now people say the Trinity is a major. How about we let people have thoughts about this openly and let the Spirit work, in, work on them and let the Word work on them and give them the opportunity and benefit of the doubt to let God work it out instead of castigation and alienation. We were afraid to do it. But if God is in control by his spirit here in this world of his believers and someone's really a believer, guess what? He's going to bring them to truth. I do not believe God is offended that his creations do not understand him perfectly. I do not believe that God is offended and a, and a believer is cursed because they see him as in the modalistic sense. Now, I know, you know, I've, I'm sure I'll learn this from James, and I've heard it from Matt Slick, and I've heard it from others. Oh, yeah, 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 this is very, very, very important. This is, God, this is fundamental, but I just don't see it as being that big of a deal. You can say, well, you're too liberal, McCraney. Maybe I am, but I'm just telling you my opinion is I think we have majored in minors and we are cutting each other's throats over nothing, and I think we need a new way. Because if we keep doing this, we're going to keep being bifurcated, trifurcated, split, divided, denominational, he's right, he's wrong, at each other's throats online. And we will never be what the body of Christ should be. The body of Christ. I hope you will see with all respect, all respect to James, I wish I had his mind. And by the way, in terms of the hair, weeds do not grow on a busy pathway. <laughs> see? <laughs> Good one. <laughs> James, he represents a very important part of the body, and that is the part that comes with certainty. And our scholars bring that to us. And it has been successful to some extent, but it's also created a major fail within the body of believers. Because it's an approach that demands allegiance to its claims. To its claims. And that automatically creates a division 
if you allow yourself, if you're disagreeing with me and you're, you're screaming at the screen and hating me, sit down with somebody for a, a week or two, a couple days in the morning or whatever. Sit down with them who, who differs with you and get to know them. Get to know their heart for life and for God and amidst all their trials. Get to know what they're really about and hear what they say. Sit with a confirmed modalist and sit with a confirmed heretic and sit with a confirmed Catholic and a Mormon, devout people. Sit with them and talk with them and hear their heart. And then decide, after you've gotten to know them, if they at least have something that says, I want God, even if their ideas are off. What we do is say, this is the idea you embrace. Once you tell me you can do, you'll embrace it, then we'll talk. Then we'll become friends. And the faith has suffered so greatly uh, because of that. I am hoping that through this dialogue, where I can be proven wrong, I can be, I'm proven wrong all the time, but I'm hoping through this dialogue the greater principle will come to be understood. And that is that guys like me, I represent the common man. I represent people who are just, yeah, I don't know. This is, I don't represent much more than that. But guys like me, girls like me, will be welcomed into the body with the way they see things. Without this wall of doctrinal demands placed upon them. Uh, I agree that Jesus was God in the flesh. I, uh, that is, so when people hear that I have a problem with the Trinity, they automatically assume that I don't believe Jesus was God in the flesh. Anyone who hears me teach on Sundays knows. Jesus is God with us. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. I do not believe yet that the Holy Spirit, even though he, the Holy Spirit has a mind, I believe the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. Simple as that. So I have an automatic problem with the Trinity. Let me give you a few other things which I did prepare and I just copied them. Um, I believe in three distinct persons. I, just, I believe in, uh, 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 what I mean by persons though is not how we say it. I believe that we can't fathom what that means. The reason this is important in this state especially is because when you talk to Mormons, persons is father, gray beard, baby Jesus, brown beard, not baby, but adolescent Jesus, brown beard, Holy Spirit cousin. There you go. That's what we got, right? And when you go down that road with them, the really only difference is that they, what the Mormons teach, the problem is with their ontology of God's makeup and how long he has been God and how he became God and he had a father and all that stuff. Big problem with all that. But when you bring the Trinity into this, the way Christians will describe it, creedal Trinitarianism describes it, it's the same thing. It's the same thing except for uh, God having a father, having a father, and Jesus being a created spirit child. Those are big differences, I get it. But when it comes to their makeup as a Godhead, they have a father, they have a son, preexistent, all, uh, and they have a Holy Spirit. I see one God in my world. I only can relate to one God. So I got half the Trinity right. I see three persons, but I see them as being God. 
the way I explain myself, human beings, we have a body, liken that to Jesus. We have a soul, liken that to the Father, mind, will, emotion, and we have a, a spirit, a pneuma, and uh, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. But I see one God, and I have trouble when we start talking about the three making one God. I'm going to show you an example of this in a second. And when I see it, I mean this with respect, it makes me cringe. I feel like a pagan. I, I'm just telling you how I feel. When I see the, the thing I'm going to show you, I feel like a pagan. I feel like I am worshiping some kind of idol. That's something that was created by men. So let me tell you quickly, how much time do I have left, Derek? Derek's back drinking the communion wine. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a limited attempt to explain God, the Trinity. It's therefore not true in the truest sense. If it's not true in the truest sense, there's room for growth. Second reason, to me, a plain reading, a plain reading of the Old Testament consistently describes one God without father-son relationship, except in a couple places. Thanks. The New Testament says that Jesus and the Holy Spirit came from God. I believe that. They came from God. How that looks, I don't know. If the creedal explanation of the Trinity is true, I don't understand why there is such scant evidence of the third person of the Trinity being that person. There's a couple references, and James may show me differently, where the Holy, we realize that the Holy Spirit has its own mind. And from that we say, a person. But it's so scant to me in the New Testament, I just don't see it as holding water. I see more evidences of it being the Spirit of God. My view seems to be made clear in Scripture. I'll explain it. When I read Scripture, you may not, Acts 3.26, Unto you first, God, unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus. Romans 15.6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord. I see a God. I see our Lord. Lord and Savior. God with us, yes. But a man full of God. Fullness of God with him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom all things and we him and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now James touched on that. But when I read it as a simpleton, I read that it says that we have one God, the Father. Okay, I agree with that. This is what Scripture says. When I read God, the Father, it makes sense, but I never in Scripture read God, the Son. It's not there. That's part of the Trinitarian creed. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Let me pray to you. I don't get it. It's not there. I read the scripture. That's what the scripture says. Philippians 2.11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture never says God the Son. I think it would say that. A couple times at least for us. And God the Holy Spirit a couple times. Please. But it had to be created by men for us to get our minds around it. Again might be right. And I give you the benefit of the doubt. I love you as a Trinitarian. But I'm not sure it's the complete package. And if it's not the complete package, I want more. I want the total package. 
Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One God and Father. 1 Timothy 2, uh, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. I don't have to do a bunch of gymnastics with my mind to try to make this work. I'm not criticizing the intelligence of James and other people who get it. He seems to get it. I can't. If I can't get it, I have to be honest. And if I'm going to be honest and authentic, I have to say, I don't see it. And then we come back to the thing, well, then what do you do with someone who honestly doesn't see it? I, honest to God, is my witness. You know, I don't see it. If I don't see it, do you want me to say I do? Do I have to say it's there when I don't believe it or see it? And that's what's imposed upon you as a Christian today. Say you believe it at least for the benefit of others. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say I don't get it. It's not in scripture to me. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. He, the one man, sat down, right hand of God. It's 1 John 4, 2. He mentioned 1 John. No man has seen God at any time. We say, Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us. I believe that, but as a man, the fullness of God in him. I don't believe Jesus was God in his flesh. That's a tough one for people who are Trinitarians. I believe his flesh was fully man, subject to temptation, subject to death. It had a will. But God in him, just like God in us, led him to be perfect in his obedience. We fail in it, but his son did not. But I don't see any difference between his flesh and my flesh. I see the same flesh in the man Jesus, but I see the fullness of God in him because the word of God was made flesh and filled that man. If you're familiar with Occam's razor, which is if you want to come to, and this is just a philosophy, but if you want to come to the simplest, if you want to come to the truth, probably go with the simplest explanation of something. That's Occam's razor. The simplest explanation for me, God, his word became flesh in Jesus, and his breath is the spirit. The Trinity makes Occam's razor a joke because it's too hard to comprehend. And so it goes against what he said. When I look around at the Trinity, I'm sorry if this is disrespectful. I don't mean to make enemies. I mean to be bold and straight. I see an idol. I see an icon that is worshipped now. Let me give you an example. Our brother James, he went and he, he gave his heart and he preached at a local church. The, can we show that, uh, Seth? This is the ad for James going and speaking at the local church. It was done by a Presbyterian church here. The glory of our triune God. And then we see that symbol over there, and I'm like, what the? What? You see, the Father's up at the top one, and the Son is over there, and the Holy Spirit's over there, all encased by the triangle, and that triangle is the God. Now, I see Hellenistic thought in that, and I see some Greek in that, and I see some of Aristotle in that, who's Greek, and I, and, and I look at that, and I say, I'm not looking to that thing and, and, and saying, yes, our triune God. I say one God. 
Do we understand him perfectly? Do I have things wrong about him? Yes. Is the Trinity closer to my ideas? Maybe. But do we need to call him the triune God and show symbols like that? You show somebody coming out of Mormonism, and you see, that's our field here. And you, and you have them come out uncertain of what anything is, and you say, come on in. Let's show you the glory of the triune God. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? I can't, I'm going to become an atheist. And they do. Now, people would say, well, we go by the truth. And the truth is, but you see, it's not the truth. It's an opinion of the truth. And that's all I'm trying to say. Let's back off together. You can believe in the Trinity if you receive extra crowns for that in heaven. Praise God. If you're wrong, then we, we try to help people grow in the spirit and the truth and we let God work with them and we show suggestions and we open our hearts to hear what people like James have to teach us, but we stop with the dogma. We stop with the dogma because I'm telling you, if we don't go this route, we're going to lose our kids. I've been saying it for seven years now. We're going to lose our kids. We're going to lose them because these things, these dogmas don't hold up in this world. And I just have to say it really quickly. You preach a worldwide flood. You preach an ark filled with every animal on the face of the earth or whatever that doctrine is. You preach a seventh day creation. You preach that, that evolution is evil. You preach that every homosexual is going to hell. Any of these things, you get on the dogma, you get on the objective, this is it rule, and you're going to lose your kids because God is not that way. And they're going to go to this world and we need to do something to stop that from happening. It's not to sell out the truth. I preach exactly what scripture says about the truth, but it's just what it says. And then we look at some of the possibilities outside of it. No matter how much the concept is defended and supported, no matter how many people accept it or reject it, the Trinity is a product of men. Bottom line. Now, James made it clear, I don't believe the Trinity because of what men have taught. I believe the Trinity because that's what the Bible has taught. I would be very curious to hear about his upbringing. I would love to know his religious upbringing. Because it's really tough uh, to be raised in a certain way and to understand certain things and then to say, the Bible tells me clearly this is what it is. You're, you have presuppositional ideas coming into your examination of the Bible and you're constantly affirming your beliefs because it's too damaging to your psyche to say otherwise. Believe me, I know, my psyche's damaged. So, yeah, 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 it's really tough. So that's why I want to hear from James just for 10 minutes about his background because it's easy to, to bring up children into believing things and when they read the Bible, they see those things. But... It's really, really hard for them then to break out of that. You know, and we've seen that in our stuff with Muslims and with Mormons and everybody else. Second to the last thing, the Trinity has to be taught. It must be taught for it to be understood. I do not believe that an old, a, a child in Australia, out back, picks up a Bible at five, starts reading, reads through it till they're 90 and dies, will come up with what creedal Trinitarianism describes. 
it must be taught. Because it has to be taught, that tells me there's something wrong with it. It should be as clear to the beggar in Scripture as it is to the scholar. I am the beggar. It's not clear. And it's debatable, and because of that, we have to make room. This is not an affront, again, I'll affirm, it's not an affront to God. It's not an affront to the deity of his son. It's not an affront to the Holy Spirit. God, if I'm wrong, open my eyes. Do you know how many times I've prayed? Show me the Trinity. Reveal to me who you are in Scripture. I want to know. And I'm, I'm serious. I want to know. I don't see it. So then what do we do with that? Do you just cast me out? along with anybody else, the Oneness Pentecostals? Do you just cast everybody out because they see and believe something differently? What's the foundation of the faith on? What's it on? And then how does it manifest itself? It's faith. I have that in his son. And it's love. That's it. Faith and love. If we can unite under those two principles and let everything else work itself out in peace and love, we will make a remarkable advance in the faith. That hasn't happened because we have believed that doctrine and a doctrinal examination is going to happen at the gates of heaven before you can enter in. And it's just not true. I don't think. Not true. Finally, my problem with the Trinity and... I say this with respect um, because I, I welcome people who view God in these ways as my brother and sister. But if we were to put on a scale, someone who says, well, I'm not sure that the Holy Spirit's a person. That one's not clear to me. And you put that on a scale of someone who says, well, I believe the Trinity completely, but I also believe, I'm sorry, God elects a few people to be his and the rest burn in hell forever and ever and ever and ever because that's his will. Which description of God is more heinous, in your opinion? I, I, I can't reconcile picking on uh, a Mormon for their crazy views of God when we have in our own house some other crazy views that, again, they're my brothers and sisters, but hard for me to swallow. So if we're going to pick on people... Let's not pick on them over the Trinity and the nature of God, which is one thing that's really tough to understand. Why don't we pick on them for another element of God's makeup that we push around? Like he enjoys punishing people and, or whatever it is that he's created a hell for most of the human race since the beginning of time to go to simply because he doesn't elect them to be saved. I'm sorry, but when I weigh those two out, I'll take somebody who isn't sure about the makeup of God and the Trinity any day of the week, if we're talking about describing a reprehensible God. Those are my reasons for having trouble with the Trinity. I am looking forward, after our break, for James, take another five minutes, to help me see. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to repent on air. The Spirit tells me, I read and I see it, I'll repent on air. No problem. But I'm not, we can't just agree so that we can get along. We have to examine what we're doing to each other. That's the bottom line, really, of what we're meeting here for.
is what are we doing to each other under the name of these things that some men have made so important they will kill the hearts of other God-seeking people because they differ with them. Thanks so much. Let's take a five-minute break. All right, brother. This is Mallory. Mallory is from California. She is most inspired by all things harmonic. She is the mother of two boys. She is also Sean's daughter. Mallory's done some pretty cool things. Mallory puts the word of God to music. This is Steve. Steve has been in some pretty cool bands. He has his favorite scripture tattooed on his arm. He wears bow ties and he tells dad jokes and he thinks they're really funny. Steve shreds on the guitar. Mallory and Steve are two very different people with one very important purpose, to create art for God. If you're so inclined to check them out, remember their names and go here. Today, Chris has brought up the subject of polygamy. The missionaries really don't want to talk about this. You see, Mormon men used to be able to marry as many women as they wanted. To some men, that may sound like a pretty sweet deal. Can you explain to me why your church promoted polygamy? At one time, he commanded his people to do it. Now he commands them not to do it. You realize that polygamy continues to be promoted in Mormonism by the simple fact that Doctrine and Covenants section 132 is a major part of church canonized scripture. Why hasn't it been removed? I'll tell you why. Because polygamy is still practiced and accepted spiritually by the church. What? Hey, check out some of the para-ministries we either host or fully support. Conversations on Hope is a ministry that my sister Heidi started when she was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. Welcome to our conversation. I'm Heidi and I'm here with my dear friend Jan. Sadly, she passed away from that disease, but before she passed, she asked if I would carry it on for her. Conversations on Hope is a ministry where we give a voice to those who have battled through tremendous hardships and how they have clung on to hope that get, got them through their most difficult seasons. We believe that there is power in our stories 
and sharing our stories of hope with others provide strength, encouragement, community, and most of all, healing. And many times in an odd way, despite life's bumps and bruises, we find wonderful and beautiful blessings that we receive amidst the suffering. Our guests are never the same once they have walked through the fire of adversity, but they do make it through and we explore the hope that sustains them and the hope that heals them in our conversations on hope. Hello friends, my name is Warren Puckett and I've got a little show called Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. And what my show is all about is a relationship. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ and not a religion or a membership in a denomination or a religion. This year, 2018, 10 years ago, actually in February of uh, 2008, that's when I had a type of year of Jubilee. It's when I was set free, set free from religious bondage and came into a personal saving relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and found out the truth about being uh, set free by the grace and mercy of God. And I just want to invite you, if you don't have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you're struggling along in the denomination or the religion that you belong to, I want to let you know in the name of Jesus that you can have that personal relationship with Him one-on-one -on -one without the religion. So He just wants you individually to come to Him and your life will be changed. So check me out. You can find me on YouTube. Like I said, Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett, and I will also be on Sean McCraney's website. Hi, I'm former LDS Bishop Earl Erskine. I've been out of the church almost seven years, and in late 2011, Sean McCraney asked me if I'd consider interviewing former LDS for a show that became known as The Ex-Mormon Files. I've been privileged to interview nearly 300 former Mormons. Almost every one of these courageous people say they know more about Mormonism now than they ever did before. Their tender stories tell how they came to know the biblical Jesus and their understanding of true grace. And you can find these interviews at exmormonfiles.com, on a Google search on YouTube, and on Roku TV. Welcome back. Thanks for waiting and uh, watching the spots. Uh, get the opportunity now to, to talk with James and hear his uh, direction and thoughts and counsel on the things I just said. And uh, just to let you know, we're going to go till about 10.15. And after that, we're going to take a quick, quick break. If you want, we might not. And then we're going to go to questions and answers in the audience. We'll have a microphone and then we also have calls that will come in. We've had a few questions that have been posted already. We'll see how that goes. Please make them respectful. And uh, on we go. All right, Sean. Yeah. Given what you just said, yeah. when I go into a mosque in South Africa 
and a Muslim says to me, we are the second largest religion in the world that teaches people to love Jesus. And you cannot be a Muslim without believing that Jesus was a prophet of God. Um, what would you say to them that would be different from what I would say to them? Is he Lord and Savior whose death... They don't believe he died. Yeah, so then we'd have a problem there in, in talking about Jesus being anything uh, important because it's his shed blood that... So there is an objective dogma of the atonement that you would say is absolutely definitional of the Christian faith. And if you don't have the cross, how about the resurrection? Um, I, I think that the resurrection is uh, vital, yes, to someone understanding. Vital or definitional? It's vital. But not definitional. Well, here's the reason why is that I don't say it's definitional and, and why I hedge on my response, James, is because I'm not sure somebody who's born again by the Spirit because God elects them, uh, I'm not sure that they would have to know that he was resurrected or that he even died. I think that... Or that he even died? Or that he even died. I think that the Spirit could regenerate somebody and they will in time come to understand those facts, facts, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit works outside of our parameters that we try to set up first. Okay, but you just said that the two things that matter were faith and love. Yeah. But faith always has an object. Yeah. So what are they having faith in if they don't... I mean, what was... Paul said, we preach what? Yeah. Christ what? Crucified. Crucified. Yeah. So how can they have faith if they don't have the essence of the gospel. See, I think that's, that's what I, I, I'm really struggling to understand here. Yeah. Because most of what you say mm -hmm. requires that as its background, mm -hmm. but then you turn around and it's this uh, dogma gives me the itchies that is where you're saying, you see people being crushed under this and hurt under this. Definitely. And so I, I sense a major disconnect, and, and disconnect yeah. uh, inconsistency. Yeah. You will have, we don't, we have logical we, inconsistencies okay, with me, James. We don't, we don't know each other, right? Yeah. And so we don't have any personal background issues or anything like that at all. Right. So I'm going to take a big risk here and hope that you're going to hear that I'm simply trying to speak to you as an individual that has a lot of experience in interacting with people who've come out of all sorts of different religious backgrounds. You just said, hey, we're up here in Utah. You need to understand former Mormons. I, I get that. Okay. I mean, like I said, I was coming up here trying, to, trying yeah. to reach out to the Mormon people when you were still LDS for, yeah. for years. I love those people. You're not talking to a person. I don't even know if you know this, but I'm under unbelievable attack right now because of the fact that I will maintain friendships with people who do not look like me. And in fact, I have a, a deep friendship with a man by the name of Michael Brown, who I have debated more often than he's debated anybody else except one Jewish rabbi he's debated more often than me. We've debated each other around the world, in Spain. He is, he is, has, we have a lot of differences, mm -hmm. but I consider him my brother in Christ, and we debate those, those issues. But both of us recognize there are definitional 
issues that form the border. Yeah. And in Galatians 2, remember the Apostle Paul, that's a tough book. Mm-hmm. But remember who he referred to in Galatians 2? Pseudadelphoi, false brethren. Okay. Why would he use a term like that? Because they were in the fellowship. Mm-hmm. They looked like us. They talked like us. Mm-hmm. But from the Apostle's perspective, there was a border. There was a dogma that he applied to them and said they were anathema. Now, that's tough. I know that's tough. And it's been abused. It has been abused. It's abused over and over again by people who are not even... That was the gospel, and that's what he was anathematizing. It was, right. it was something that was absolutely central to definitional faith. I get it. I understand that there are people who expand that out to all sorts of other things they shouldn't expand out to. Mm-hmm. We're not arguing that. Okay. I get that. All right. But... Could I suggest that maybe, just possibly, because of what you've experienced, because of your coming out of a system that did have extensive dogma that was based upon human authority, mm-hmm. hey, if you're in the priesthood, you don't question your priesthood, the people up, you know, up the line, sort of, sort of type thing, okay? Because that's been your background, right? and then you find out it actually exists not just in Mormonism, but outside of that. Yes. Could you, Sean McCraney, have a bias that has come into your mind because of your experience to where you're sitting here going, I hear you people talking about dogma. I don't like dogma except for a few places. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to differentiate myself from you all Mm -hmm. by, in essence, refusing to recognize what has bound the Christian people together mm-hmm. down through the ages. Mm-hmm. Sean, when I travel around the world, mm-hmm. I can go into little churches in Ukraine. And I'll tell you, the first time I did it, it really freaked me out because I was, we're, we're close to the same age. Mm-hmm. When you hear Ukrainians singing in Russian, it's like, oh no, they're about to launch the nuclear weapons. I mean, you and I, that's, that's what we were raised with. You know, I never thought, and it was so beautiful to be with them. I bet. But you know what binds us together with my Ukrainian brothers or my South African brothers or in New Zealand or Australia or wherever, and I haven't been all over the world, but this is, you know what binds us together? There is a core. Sure. I'm not sure that you could define that core consistently. And what I that can. means is, when I take this into a mosque, mm-hmm. there's some sharp guys on the other side, mm-hmm. and they're going to find those inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. I think the Christian faith is something we can bring mm-hmm. to everyone. Mm-hmm. It has a message for everyone. Sure. Am I missing it? A uh, couple things, because you asked, you made a couple, um, uh, asked a couple questions. First of all. Um, you, you asked so many questions that I'm trying to go back. The first one was my dogma, the dogmas I believe are. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a dogma. That, 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 that's the thing. I believe that people who are Christian will come to understand the dogmas that are necessary. I do believe that. But I don't believe that everybody who is a Christian has those dogmas in place from the get-go. Okay, so are you hearing me saying that every Christian is theologically perfect from the start. No, but even on the ones that you would consider core, I don't believe every Christian 
is in possession of those core issues. Have you ever heard me say, I say on a, on a Sunday morning, if we were to go to most evangelical churches, I said this this weekend, mm -hmm. and give them a test on the doctrine of the Trinity, mm -hmm. majority of them would test modalistic. Exactly. My point. But why? But why? They can't understand the Trinity is why. And they don't want to take the time. When and they're say, lazy. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> those, are two different, those are two very different well, answers. Those are all my answers. Those are two I, very different yeah. answers. My, my kids got the Trinity in junior high school or before. Okay. And I believe you can. I know you do. And I think that what I presented was pretty clear. And if we sat down, if, and, and I, if, you, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. But obviously what I would say is, look, let's go to those texts. Can, it sounds like you're saying, well, you might be right, sure. but I don't see it. Yeah. But if there is an objective truth in those texts, then what I pointed out about the two, the, the use of personal pronouns, it has to be dealt with. I, I do, and I've dealt with them because I do agree with you that they were co-eternal, co-equal, uh, co forever and ever. I, I do agree with that. But I just don't think we can understand what it means, James. So what you're telling me is really, when it boils down to it, what you are saying is, my view is right. My view of God is right, and all other views that differ with mine are incorrect. What I'm saying is the revealed view of God in Scripture is right. As interpreted by? And interpretation does not do away with the objective revelation of God's truth in Scripture. Okay, and I agree with that. And, and, and what I'm saying is when I see the objective revelation coming through in Scripture, I see things that differ with your views. But how can that differ in regards to the existence of the use of personal pronouns? Personal pro this is one argument. That's why you debate many people who differ with you, James. This is my point. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, I can't debate you. I, I, I won't even try. I, 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 I think you have a perspective that may or may not be valid, but I just have to embrace you as a brother because I don't know. Don't you understand? I don't no, know. No, uh, when you say you don't know, if your view is correct. In regards to who God is. I mean, what is the purpose of the Christian life? What is it stated for us in Scripture? We are to do what? Grow in the grace and knowledge okay. of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means there must be an objective revelation that has been provided to us that allows us to do that in such a way that when you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and I grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not divided from one another because we're going different directions, but we're actually united because of the clarity of that truth. That's yeah. what holds I, I the Christian people together. I would dispute that by just looking at the, the 26, 31,000 denominations when you talk about the established truth we all share. There are not 31,000 denominations. There are 2,600 different churches that say they are the right one. I know that. Well, there are 30. So we have, look it. We have had division ad nauseum. You're trying to say that that's not really true. Division I'm saying on it's what? A division on almost everything, including the Trinity. Okay, so when I say there are certain valid divisions between Christians, I look at the New Testament okay. and I see the church at Corinth looks a lot different than the church at Ephesus. Okay. But I would absolutely assert, and I think I can prove clearly from Scripture, that there were core truths that bound together 
the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus, what are even they? with and, and ex who we worship and what he has done for us. Because where are the, you know how we know this? Let's, let's consider this. We know, you agreed with me that in Galatians, Paul uses the anathema in regards to the gospel. Yeah. These individuals claim to be brothers, yeah. but they were adding something to faith in Christ. Right. And the word he uses there is a strong word, anathema. Right. That's not man's curse, that's God's curse. Right. Okay, so there was a dogma that Paul said with, I think, with tears. Right. Okay. Okay, so we should never, we should never rejoice in anathematizing error. Okay. But we will never be able to honor the truth if we don't recognize that there is such a thing as error. Okay. What are the, what are the brass tacks truths that okay. someone needs to know okay. for salvation? Okay. For salvation. When we used to come up here, you know the only reason we stopped coming up here was because the street preachers showed up with their signs and turned the whole thing into a circus. Glad we did it. We did that. We did that for 18 years. Every general conference we were up here. And when we would prepare people, I would tell them, when you speak to the Mormons, who is God? Who is Jesus? What is salvation? That's always what you want to get to. Okay. Because that's the essence of the gospel. Okay. I can't talk about, we agreed that Paul, gospel, anathema. Yeah. You can't explain the gospel without knowing the God that performed the actions of the gospel. Okay. And it's God's purpose. Paganism is the worship of an unknown God. Okay. God does not want pagan worship. Right. He wants us to know him. Right. He wants his people to have intimate relationship with him. Of course. And so this is where you have the issue of the warning about the false Jesus in 1 Corinthians. Okay. And who are the Antichrists in 1 John? Yeah. Those who have specific, purpose, purposeful, Christological denials of positive truths about Jesus, specifically right. that he truly took on flesh. Right. So I would argue that a person, now this is, not, 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 now hear me here, because I, I don't think you've heard someone make these distinctions. I want to hear clearly. I don't, there is a difference between knowing a truth and denying it okay. and being ignorant of it. Okay. So when I talked about those people, I'm, I'm not trying to ignore everybody. I'm just, yeah. I hope you realize I'm talking, I'm seriously yeah. trying to talk to Sean here. Um, when, when, when I said that there are people who would test modalist, it was not because they know what the issues are and they've made the choice that that is the biblical way. It is ignorance. When I first started talking to more missionaries, I started talking to people in my church and I'm asking them questions because the missionaries are hitting me with stuff. I'm younger than the missionaries are at this point in time. Mm -hmm. I got modalistic answers from people who should have known better. Okay? You identify it as laziness. No, as, I said it could be. They don't I, understand. It was. It was in this instance. Okay. It, was, it was not. So there's a difference between being ignorant of something. I don't know anybody who has an absolutely perfect knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. I ain't sending them to hell for that. Okay. that it, there's, there's no test up there where you've got to under, perfectly understand perichoresis. Do you understand perichoresis? Um, no, tell me. Okay. A perichoresis is the inter inter interpenetration of the divine persons in their relationship with one another. But see, the point is, that's not going to be part, that's not going to be on the test. All right? But if you know that the Christian proclamation is that Jesus Christ 
became flesh. Okay. And you say, no, 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 you don't understand. If he became flesh, flesh is evil, only spirit's good. So he only seemed to have flesh. The Apostle John says, that person, antichristos. Right. Antichrist. So there is a Christological core of truths that the Apostles said, the line is drawn here, and outside of that, we can't have the Antichrist in the fellowship. Yeah. Okay? It seems to me that you, that, that you, you have an aversion to that because you've seen the abuse of it when people expand it beyond what the apostles did. That was your I second question. And you, may, and you said, is it possible? It is possible. Absolutely. I'm, I'm anti-authoritarian in large part because of what I've experienced, in large part because of my nature. So I agree. I could be swayed by what I experienced as a Mormon. I admit it. Anti-authoritarian. I think there's something back there about that. Yeah, there will be. Let me, let me ask you. So let me ask you a simple question. Yeah. The apostles, when they established churches, what was the one thing they did to help strengthen those churches to survive in the midst? And, and, and I've, got to, I've got to tell you something here. Yeah. You said once on a program, I think you've maybe corrected it since then. Mm. You once said that more Christians killed other Christians over the Trinity than the Romans had killed Christians. Oh, no, I wouldn't have said that. Well, I could have said it, but I don't think I meant that now. I wouldn't mean that now. If I said it, I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you said it once, and okay. I actually addressed it because someone had sent it to me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Those churches were about to face 250 years worth of persecution. The peace of the church came in 313 AD, and that was after 60 years of constant empire-wide persecution. You know what they did to strengthen those churches? They went to each church, and they established elders, elders. in those yeah. churches. Brother, there is a biblical authority structure, is there not? Brother, we yeah, there is. There is definitely a biblical authority. The apostles established elders, and but we we have left the topic of Trinity, and we are well, entering into a topic of of fulfillment. And I'm a I'm a I'm a full preterist, so it's fulfilled. And I don't see anyone having the right to assign what the apostles and the elders did under the fact that they were going to be. Uh, wiped out if they didn't obey and stay together and all the things that were taught then we I just don't believe we have any business taking those passages and assigning them to ourselves and that's a whole other issue to talk about I okay. just want to let's let's okay. stay on well, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not yeah. trying to together I'm just simply saying that when you say when I present to you the son as being equal with the father and not giving consideration to holding on to that, doing the actions of a person in Philippians chapter 2, and you say, I don't see it. Yeah. I'm wondering why you don't see it, because I would say to you, the, the grammar, syntax, vocabulary, those are factual issues. Yeah. So might it be that you don't see it because of those other things. I wasn't trying to go into a dis discussion of those other yeah, things. Yeah. But do you have a filter that's operating here that comes from your experience? It's quite possible, yes, it's quite possible. But the, uh, the, the reason I would say that that's not the, the, my problem with the Trinity, uh, James, is um, my filter was Mormon. And my filter taught me a God that's absolutely has no effect on how I see the Trinity. Uh, I, I mean, we talk about a God who has a father, who has a father, who has a father, who created Jesus, 
So uh, there's no relation in what it affected me on how I see the trade now. Except, have you not said, you said, you just said a few moments ago when I was listening to something from you yesterday, you said that basically ontologically, the Trinity and the, the LDS perspective are basically identical other than the concept of the physical, physicality of the Father. And Jesus being created. Yeah. And yet... Aren't, am I wrong? Yes. How? Massively so. Because, Tell me how. Because the nature of the one God as the source and being of everything else that exists, yeah. Elohim, depending on your Mormon perspective, but you know that many Mormons believe in the intelligences. Yeah. He was once just one okay. of the many, many intelligences, I'm just, right? I'm just yes, and I said... It, so fundamentally, having, ontologically, no, 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 that no, no, means no. it's all out. No, because I said father had a father had a father, and him being one of the... I'm not talking about that, James. I'm talking about father, son, Holy Spirit, one in purpose. Have you ever said they're one in purpose? Of, they have to be one in purpose okay. because... But not because one in body. Bec be there's body. Yeah. God, God is not limited to a physical body in the first no, place. But they're not, one, they're not one God. They are three with one purpose, right? We recognize the difference between being and person. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, and I know others have explained this to you. Yeah. But I think it's, this is not just a Greek philosophical distinction because mm. this, is, this is the only way to understand God in the Old Testament as well. Mm. Being is ma what makes you what you are. Mm -hmm. Person is what makes you who you are. Okay. We have a common humanity, okay. but we are specific individuals. Okay. The being of God is what makes God, God. All right. But since that being is not limited by time or space, All right. it can be shared by three persons. Now, I agree with I that. I have no problem with that. None. <laughs> I have no problem with that at all. I agree. You realize that's what the Athanasian Creed is saying that I, you've mocked. I, I, uh, I that's don't. That's what it's saying. No, I don't. I, it, when it says being person, when it says I, I have understood it differently from talking with other people. I'm, just ask, I'm asking you, teach me how it's different from Mormonism with three being of one purpose. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit do have one purpose. Okay, that's Mormonism. But that's not Mormonism because Mormonism says that the father gave birth to the son. And yeah. there's lots of different views as to, as you put it, cousin yeah. Holy Spirit. But I've had all sorts of different yeah. other ways. But he's one of the offspring of Elohim. Yeah. You put it that way. Okay. So when we talk about the oneness that they share, okay. it is that oneness in the being of God. Did you hear what I said about Yahweh? Yeah. Have you ever thought about what it means that the Father is identified as Yahweh, the Son is identified as Yahweh, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. I, I, I agree with that completely. But if that means that Yahweh is a name for the being of God, okay. then you have three persons who are distinguished from one another, no problem. sharing that one being, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. My difference, and tell me how I'm wrong, is I see the one being being the father and the other two sh being God and the other two sharing in God. So we're not so so you're not agreeing with what I'm saying because when I say there is one being shared by three persons you're saying there is one being with one primary person yeah, I, and yeah, then definitely. two manifestations yeah, coming from that. Yeah, you could say that's that. where the modal part comes in. So that takes us back to what I presented, and I've got to ask you again, how can you say 
you agreed with what I, where, where was I wrong in the exegesis? We don't know what it means when the scripture, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe the scripture talks about the word being made flesh. I don't believe the scripture says Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus was made flesh. No. No. I, I, I would, I would, Jesus yeah. is the name of the incarnate one. Right, I, is the I name agree. of the incarnate one. So if we so want to refer to the Logos or the second person Logos. or the Son, Colossians 1 says, Son, okay. uses Son okay. earlier than incarnation. What the Son of God means when he's called also the Logos of God and the, and the, the Word of God, when, what that means does not translate to me to person does not translate to a, G, a baby Jesus. Okay, then can, then I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I wanna push you on this. Push me. John 1, 1, what does it mean that the word was with God? Because his words were with him. What does that mean? I don't know. But if the, if, but, but you can know. I don't think I can. The, the, the scriptures are deep enough, Sean. What does you it mean? What, James, what does it mean that the word is with okay. my word is with me? I have words in me. They haven't come out yet. Well, I, I, they're words in me. Think, but think with me for a moment. If, uh, have, you written, have you written a book? I've written many books. P the PDFs. They're all, were, they're they're all used as firewood. But okay, go ahead. But, all right. When you introduce the heart of the matter of your book. Yeah. I'm glad the emphasis came. When, I wouldn't have got it otherwise. <laughs> when, you, when you introduce what you really want to communicate in that book, yeah. do you have the capacity to communicate to other people using language? Yes. John 1.1 1, 1 is the lens that John wants us to read the entire rest of the book through. Okay. So if you sit there and say, we can't know, I say to you, we can know, and not only, and I didn't have time to expand upon this, but when you look at John 1.1, 1, 1, it says the word was with God. Yeah. The book end to that in verse 18 is no one has seen God in any time. Yeah. The unique God, now we can talk about the text there if you want to, but I can substantiate that reading very strongly. The monogenes theos, who is, and it's literally at the Father's side. Okay. I mean, I'm a Scotsman. I don't want anybody getting overly close to me, okay? Right. But so, in an Italian sense, right up next right. to it, okay? At the Father's side, he has exegeted him. That's, the, that's where the word comes okay. from. He's made him known. There is an, so there is an intimate relationship between father and son that allows the son to be an accurate revealer of who the father is. Okay, so that's speak. what's being said in John okay. 1, 1. I agree with that explanation, James. I believe everything you just said. I just don't believe that that side-by-side -side exegesis of Jesus from God, the, consu the, the, the uh, consuming fire, his logos, I don't believe that that was a little man. I don't believe he was Jesus. I believe not, he, he. We're not saying that it was the. Inc you're in, not saying that's in an John important one, clarification. In John one fourteen, the, the word, word became flesh. Became flesh. Right. And what's fascinating, Sean, is that when the words described before that, the verb that is used is, is called the imperfect. It's continuous action yeah. past. Every other thing is described with an aorist. It comes into existence. Okay. John switches at verse fourteen. And he says, the word became flesh at a point in time. So we're not saying that Jesus has been a man okay. for eternity. Thank you what for that saying, one. Stop. Did you hear it? That Jesus, is, not a man 
for eternity. That's a remarkable advance in my mind. Thank you. Continue. But I'd kiss you if you were a Scotsman. So, so what we're saying is, though, that the Logos, yes. or the Son, because he uses personal pronouns of himself, in John 17, would you agree with me yeah. that Jesus said, I was glorious yes. in the presence of the Father before yes. the world was. We're not saying that he was incarnate then. But what is a personal... Where did you ever get that idea? But because, because, well, I don't want to use names. I don't want to say names, but they've told me that pre-incarnate God, Jesus, Holy Spirit is as different in person as me, you, and Jason. As me, you, and Jason. When I hear that, I hear Mormonism, and I just forget it. No, I can't see it. I have to ask you a question. That's, that's you, not what Gregory said. You, you mentioned Gregory Nisi. No, never, he never no, said anything like that. No, Gregory didn't say it. No, I'm not. Ta I'm talking about living person. Uh, James, hold on one sec. If the Logos is not seen as a person, but as a, a human person, what was the Logos that came from God? Okay. That's a personal program. Here's, here's, here's what's happening here. And, and it, maybe it is your Mormonism. Okay. I'll, okay. Maybe, it's sure. the, maybe it is. You are reading into the word person a physicality that indicates that you're reasoning from man up toward God. Okay. All the early church fathers who were thrashing these things out, and I would disagree, by the way, that like Gregory of Nyssa invented this or something like that. It was, long be it was long before him. Well, I, know. I, I, can, I can read you Ignatius's words from 108 that right. are, have such a high Christology, it's, it's amazing. So this is, this is apostolic. I, I honestly believe it's apostolic. But the point is this. When we use words like being and person about God, we must purposefully eschew, deny, importing creaturely categories into what we're talking about. Another high five. Another high five. What? Well, Let's keep going. There's, there's nothing new here, though. There's new to, to a lot of people. I can guarantee okay. you, you have Christians who are going, what? Because if you ask a normal Christian, Not James, they'll say, Jesus was incarnate. He was God's son. He was with him. And they see the two standing side by side like me and you. After the incarnation. After was, the incarnation, not, sure. Not, but not, not before? before? No. Thank you very much. Not in my church. I'm having victories up here. No. Okay, now, now wait a second. So but, what was it? What does person and being okay, mean okay. pre-existent? Exactly. When we're talking about being, yeah. you and I have being. A rock has being. Okay. If I throw the rock at your head, it will prove that it has being. Okay. Right? Right. Okay. Right. But the being of the rock it does not make it personal. Remember pet rocks? Yeah. Okay. Mine were personal. Okay. <laughs> did they ever love you back? I thought they did. Well, you. you I tried to make them love you were, me. You were deceived as, 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 as everybody else who bought into that silly thing. Okay. The point is that rocks have being, but they're not personal. Okay. They cannot work for the betterment of rock kind. Okay. They don't use personal pronouns of themselves. Okay. okay? Personhood involves the recognition of the me and the you. Okay. When we're talking about God, we don't have to put that into a body. We don't have to have little diapers or in growth or okay. anything else because we're talking about God being eternal. He has no beginning, no end. 
in fact, God may indeed exist outside of time. Okay. Time may be something that God himself uh, created, and we can't even begin to comprehend any right. of that. Amen. The relationship that Father, Son, and Spirit bear to one another is eternal and timeless, okay. but it is not incarnated in the sense of three persons walking around on legs or doing any of that type of stuff. But there, the most important relationship is one of love. I agree. The Father, for example, in John chapter 5, the Father loves the Son yeah. and shows Him whatever He is doing. Yeah. Love exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. They are glorified together. And so, if you've had the idea, don't, please no, wait, don't no, tell wait, me. No, wait, no, wait, no, wait. I have had the idea, but wait, I have to say, James, I am not saying being and person were not present in the Logos of God. I'm saying that the Logos... It's being and presence is not what we think, what we impute to it being. We don't know what that is. We know that the Logos is differentiated from the Father Fine. and has an eternal relationship with the Father. Fine. No problem. That Just like my words have pronouns. a relationship with me. I can't grab them now, but they have a relationship your with me. Your words do not have a relationship to you. They your do. Words, your words cannot turn around and talk about a time when they were with it's you. It's because I'm not God, but His words can. But now you're, now you're, His now words you're can using, do anything. Now you're, now you're introducing something. Where, where does the Scripture ever talk about words being able to have an existence apart from a person? Where does Scripture... Because that's what you just said. You're just I'm saying that your words... I'm not talking about apart words, from the person of God. Not from apart from the being and person of God. I'm so saying His words... Being they, and person are two different things. I know. You're I'm, apart from the No, I'm not conflating them. James, I'm just trying to say simply that I don't think we understand what God's word, logos, not even word, logos, what that means to the being and person of Christ pre-incarnate. I don't think we can comprehend that. So even though the, the lens through which John wants us to read his gospel yeah. specifically tells us that the Logos has eternally been in relationship with the Father. I agree with that. And that then that helps us to understand when Jesus says things like in John 8:58, put in Abraham Genesai ago I me, before Abraham was, I am. Right. And then in John 17, this incredible prayer where you have two divine persons speaking to one another, and he refers back to when he was glorious in the presence of the Father. Those, weren't, those are not words saying words were glorious in the presence of the Father. That's the Son saying, I was glorious in the presence of the what Father. I was, you don't know and I don't know. That's an opinion. I don't, you don't know what, when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, was he talking about as the word of God? What does that mean? We don't know. We have to, we have to come up with answers to make it fit, but we don't know what that means, James. When you say we don't know. No one knows. Yeah. That sounds like a dogma to me. Well, okay, We're, we don't want to go through a philosophical trap. No, 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 I'm not, I'm no. Just, okay, it, it, is, like... it is as dogmatic. I don't know. I'll just say that way. Because, because Sean, 
But I believe you believe I, you know. I think it's not about me and it's yeah. not about my opinions. I think the word of God has been given to us so that we may have an accurate knowledge of the one that we worship. And I read it just like you do. And so do the oneness Pentecostals. When, and, we, and, we, and we have Greek scholars who disagree with you. And we when have you all say sorts. That, when you say that, yes. that's very frequently brought up to me. Yeah. And I go, have I debated them? Have you seen my debates with any oneness Pentecostals? I haven't seen any of your debates. Okay, take a take a look and find out. I don't that, like debates. The, I don't. The very the very fact that you say, well, since there's disagreement, then we can't know. That is an absolute destruction of the epistemology of the writers of the New Testament. They would not have agreed with you with that it, because they themselves were engaged in constant conflict. And that never changed the fact that Jude, when he wrote to the Christians, he said, "We are to contend earnestly for what." the once for all delivered the saints faith yeah. we can know what that is and sean my my i'm just standing back yeah and w listening to you yeah and hearing what you're saying yeah i think because you have seen people expand the borders of what that once for all faith is into all sorts of side areas and then use it as a club to hit you over the head right you have an aversion to recognizing there has to be a core that gives a clear delineation that outside of that, this is not Christianity. I have to address this. I do believe there's a core. I just don't think it is known by people as to what that is until it's revealed to them. I say that because I believe there are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and Catholics who have the core, they just don't know it. And they love and they have their faith in what they've been given what they've been given, that is what they have. And so they have the core, they just don't know it yet. And that's why I'm not dogmatic about all these things because I don't believe the whole world knows what you're talking about. It is very hard for me to understand how you can say what you just said and then also say, yeah, I agree with what you're saying about what Paul did in Galatians. Yeah. Or I agree with what you're saying about what John did in Galatians. Because I agree with it. I do agree with it. I personally agree with it. Sean, you are a walking contradiction. I am. <laughs> There's you no, are a walking contradiction. There's no doubt in that. But remember what Paul said, and he made clear in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, James, is that it's not our wisdom of men. It's not by our knowledge. It's not by our intellect. But what is it by? It's by the Spirit. It's by Christ. I got to correct you on that. Yeah. When he specifically speaks of man's wisdom and man's knowledge and man's strength, the contrast is not by spirit. That comes in the second half. Mm. Initially, what he says, it's the foolishness of the message preached. It was an objective, knowable, definable, and Sean, I'm defensible message. My brother, don't get me wrong. I preach the gospel. I preach Christ crucified, resurrected, shed blood, grace. I preach uh, the Father. I preach the Son. I preach the Holy Spirit. I teach all of it. Don't, don't think because we're having this discussion, I'm as, as contradictory as you think. But I do believe when we're in the, a venue to talk about ideas and concepts that you have to be honest and I have to be honest and express my heart to you so that we can make we can make some ground here and I'm and I'm hoping I have learned from you some things and but um, 
But when you say you're preaching the gospel to people and then 90 seconds earlier you said there are Buddhists yeah. who have the core. Yeah. I say to you, if I understand anything about Buddhism, most of them don't even believe in a personal God. How can you have Christian faith which requires, what did Paul say in Galatians again? When you serve those who were what? Yeah. By nature, not gods. I know. Did they I, have the core then? I'm not talking about those who serve by nature, those who are not God. I'm talking about Buddhists who are seeking God in spirit and truth, and they just don't know him yet. I'm talking about Romans 1, really, James. And I don't want to go back and forth, but I believe that God manifests himself and those who seek him outside of all the stuff we want them to be and do, they have him. That's the only way I can understand how we have such loving god seeking humble people who haven't yet heard the good news. Okay, I know we need to go to these things, right. but I do have to ask you one question in regards ask. to what you just said. Yeah. How do you understand Paul's direct statement in Romans 3, I believe it's verse 11, it's either 11 or 12. Ukag zeton tantheon, there is no God seeker. There's no what? There is no God seeker. Okay. That's what he says. There is none who seeks after God. You just identified an entire group of people. Now, when I see someone that looks to me like they're seeking after God, I realize that's because God's Spirit is already active within them okay. in drawing His people to Himself. You don't like that concept from no, what you I, said a little earlier. No, early. I mean, I, 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 I believe that. I just don't like uh, the way that you extrapolate it out over the course of the whole human race. I will be willing to guess you're probably not accurately aware of how we do extrapolate that. I think I'm pretty close. Uh, <laughs> but maybe I'm a contradiction. I don't know. You are a walking uh, and, 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 I, and I want you to understand, James, that I represent the common man. And um, I was born again, and my life changed because of Christ Jesus. And I represent men who are walking contradictions. And I represent people who don't have the answers and who don't understand or even care to understand the things that you're, that do you, you're talking do you, about. So you feel that that's a good thing? I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a reality. It's a reality. I is seek. it something that an elder in a church, and you know uh, First Timothy that's and dead. Titus. That's dead stuff to me. We're, we're that's done. dead stuff to you. We're done with it. Wow. There's no elders in churches. But we're, I mean, who said? Who? So, well, well, it's pretty simple to me. Yeah. Jesus said that the supper would be, would be celebrated when he until, comes. And, until the, the, sum, the summation of all things. And I think the summation of all things has happened. That changes everything. That's what I was trying to tell you. That's the thing is I'm talking really from a completely different place. So that's why I want to stick on the Trinity because I, I know you're an expert in it. You've written a great book about it and, and you can teach me things. But my brother, I'm a full, I'm a full predator that's fulfilled. The fulfillment is done. It's over. There is, the, the, the body is the spirit. The plane of church is over. And we never had any right to start it back up. God has shaken everything to the dust, everything to the dust. So the only oh. thing that can remain is unshakable. So I, I, would, uh, I would point out that uh, Scripture specifically says that God would receive glory through the church throughout all ages. Yeah. The idea that there is I an age that. where there is no 
the same church that Jesus Christ founded and has those elders and, and that organization um, is not a biblical concept, but yeah. that's a different... It's a different topic. conversation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, okay, we are going... Do we need a break? Yes or no? Sh no show hands of yes. Well, there are people with small bladders, James. We've well, only got, you only got 35 minutes. Okay, the three of you get up and go to the bathroom. We're not going to have a break. Uh, let's go... In-house questions, Larry has the microphone, and uh, raise your hand, line up, and then we're going to take some calls on the air. Susan in Salt Lake City, you're on Heart of the Matter. S Susan? Hi, how are you, brother? Good, how you doing? Good. Hey, I love your ministry, and I have three scriptures that I would like to share contradicting the Calvinism Oh That's Here not a subject, is it? Yeah, you know what, Susan, I would love to take it, but we're going to try to stay more on topic. James uh, said that's not on the subject, and, and i got to respect his wishes on that one. But call, uh, call afterward on another show, and I'll give you what he would have said. I'll be completely <laughs> wrong, and then we'll have another debate. Okay, well, I just, uh, it's in the scripture, and I, I'd like the brother to know it's wrong. All right. Uh, you I, know, I can guarantee you I've heard every one of them. He, he says he's heard every one of them. Thank you so much, Susan. God bless you. Love you, brother. Love you, too. Bye-bye. We're going to Man Manuel. I think you know this guy. Manuel in Montana. No, I'm in Missouri. James knows who I am. You know. <laughs> All right. Fire away, brother. We got, a, we got a line of people who have questions. Okay. James, I wanted to ask you. Who, who does the church belong to? Who's the who's bridegroom? Who's the bridegroom? Who's the bridegroom is the question. Well, it's called the Church of Christ. He is the, he is the bride. Uh, he's the bridegroom, yeah. Christ is the bride. Who's, who's the bridegroom of the church? He said Christ. Okay. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, not the Trinity. Irrelevant. Right? So you, you have you have one third of God you have one third of God married to the church and two thirds of God eternal bachelors. Um, right? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I do know Manuel. Uh, we have I've I've had him on my program and uh, I've, I've actually given him time on my program. Cut it off. We've explained the, these issues many many times. We're not. This would involve dividing the being of God. God's being cannot be divided into thirds or anything else. We do not believe that the Father is a third of God, or the Son is a third of God, or the Spirit is a third of God. That's a fallacious uh, argument. That's, that's a fallacious argument. Okay. But it's, it's a common argument from, uh, from certain perspectives. Man, well, keep talking with James and see if you guys can uh, work things out. Uh, thanks for calling, my brother. Let's go to line three real quickly. Uh, it, it took down whoever you are. So, lover of God, what do you have to say? Yes, sir. I was want to ask both of you, uh, if you think it's possible that the Holy Spirit of God could actually um, guide somebody to join the Mormon Church, even though he doesn't believe in it. James first. Well, the, what's the Holy Spirit called? He's called the Spirit the of truth. truth. And so I don't believe exactly. the Holy Spirit of, of God uh, testifies of, of, of error. So, no, I do not believe that would happen. I would differ yeah. with James. I think that the Holy Spirit uh, can move people to do different things to, in, the, uh, in their progression towards ultimately reaching truth. We have a case in Hi. our very audience of someone who was uh, led, a pastor's son, led to join the Mormon church, went on a mission, 
and while he was out there, was led to stop, and he learned something about that to now reach the LDS. So I, I take it a little bit bigger. I think the Holy Spirit can move us to do things that initially seem errant, but in the end lead us to greater truth. Well, say I, I know because well, I'm a man that in a lot of ways I have kind of a view that uh, Dr. James White has. I've actually watched both of you are still quite a bit. Uh, and I have almost like a Calvinistic view, and I don't believe that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God. I don't believe the Book of Mormon's true, but I've gone to the church. It's like I sit inside and I watch and I see and I try to figure out. I understand, like from your perspective, let's say, Sean, that you know you were raised in this, and trying to communicate with you in a lot of ways is difficult if you don't understand Mormonism and the culture yeah. and and the way they think and the way that they act. It's almost like a, a mechanical stiltedness. Yeah. These people that are Mormon, and I'm trying to understand this mechanical stiltedness and how to work with them and talk to them. It's like I've gone inside of, like, like you were talking about, <laughs> I'm sitting inside of a, a <clears throat> congregation of anathema, I realize, but I'm slowly trying to talk to them. I try to preach a powerful Christ to them as I can, um, and maybe I'm viewed a little bit differently. But it seems that the people in my ward generally like me. So I was just curious about, you know, if it could be possible that the Holy Spirit of God could bring somebody in there to not stay in this church by any means. No, yeah. definitely not. Well, uh, but uh, go in, it kind of. Go ahead. Yes. Thanks, my brother. And uh, if I wasn't okay. a red-blooded heterosexual male who's married, I would fall in love with that accent. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Right, See you later. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. He doesn't want to touch me. The, the Scotsman over here. Yep. <laughs> All I, right. I didn't bring my Claymore with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good thing. All right, let's go. Uh, we're going to go to some in-house questions, then we're going to come back and go to Mark in Southern South Carolina and Nick in Orem. Go ahead. Please say your name and uh, your question. Hi there. Can you hear me? We on? Yes. Anyway, this question is for Sean. Um, you had mentioned in your, when you did your 45 minutes about um, the different verses that you point to with Jesus and God being in the same, being the same. Yeah. Um, and one that did stick out to me was that you, um, you talked about, there was a verse that you quoted about um, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Yeah. And that, to me, it just does not make sense, maybe, and I would love to hear what you'd have to say about how can Jesus and God be together but separate um, but one? Like, I understand, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, in your thinking it might be, like, the inner, but if you're one, then it's more in, not next to. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I, I mean, I just read it, the way I read it, uh, my sister, is I see Jesus the man, because that's post-resurrection, sitting on the right hand of the consuming fire. And that's how I see it, with that man now being our mediator, having overcome what we couldn't. And that's how I just see it in my head, and, you know, maybe uh, a walking... Well, I think, I think it's really important to, to point something out. In the New Testament, the normative term used for the Father is theos, God. 
the normative term used for the Son is kurios, Lord, which was the translation of the word Yahweh from the Old Testament. So it's not it's like it's some lesser thing. And there are times when Jesus is described as theos. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I think once you sort of seem to indicate that that wasn't the case, but Titus 2.13, uh, looking for the, the, the blessed appearing of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. Second Peter 1, 1, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, so Jesus is described as God. I think Romans 9, 5 does the same thing. Um, but normatively, when the two are brought together, it's when it's speaking of God, that's the Father. When it's speaking of Lord, that's the Son. Okay. And so I think we get confused because when we hear God, we don't look carefully enough to see whether we're talking specifically about the Father or we're just simply talking about God acting generically. I see. And that does introduce confusion to people's, into people's thinking. There's a question about it. Does that help at all? Um, kind of. I mean, I under, I, I'm a biblical Christian. I believe in the Trinity. Um, so, I, it, like I said, it just doesn't make sense the, how you can have it be a one thing and James, maybe you can. She's touch talking about the distinction mm. between the Father and the Son. Especially if, if the Son is at the right hand of the Father, yeah. interceding for us, he can't. He must be a, a different person yeah. than the Father. Yeah, I have no problem with being a a, a, a different uh, a person. All I'm saying, and, and, and pre-incarnate is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about post-incarnation. Uh, I'm talking about pre-incarnate. This is my whole thing. Pre-incarnate, I don't think we understand because the, New the Old Testament doesn't give us hardly any indication of father-son relationship. I don't think we understand what it meant for uh, incarnate Jesus to be the Word of God, the Logos of God. I don't think we understand what that really means. I do think that there is a relationship. I do think that, but I don't know why the relationship is so difficult for me because I think his Word is different than what we're thinking can I, can, I, can I help you with one thing? This has helped a lot of people, and let me just mention it very, very quickly because we've got a lot of folks. Where is, from my opinion, where is the Trinity revealed? If you have a Bible, you can open it up, and you find the book of Matthew, and then you go right up to the front, and you find the end of Malachi, and you see this, uh, see this right here, see that gutter between the two? Yeah. That's where the Trinity is revealed. Okay. Now, what does that mean? What it means is the Trinity is revealed in the incarnation of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It took place in history. So the New Testament becomes the record of what God has done in the incarnation of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't have in the New Testament, hey, we're going to tell you something you've never heard of before. We're going to introduce you to something called the Trinity. Instead, you have this amazing willingness on the part of the New Testament writers to do stuff like they do at the end of, of 1 Corinthians. You know, when, when they'll, they'll, they'll talk about the Spirit of, of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. Yeah. They'll, they'll, just, they'll just interchange these things without, yeah. even, without even feeling like there's a problem with yeah. it. And you'll have the three persons united together, the love of God, the grace of, of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you'll put these three together, and there's never an explanation like, oh, by the way, in case you're confused, this is why. You know why that is? Because the New Testament religion, the faith provided, founded by Jesus, that was the essence of it. Peter was a, an experiential Trinitarian. Hmm. He had walked with Jesus. He had heard the Father speak on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hmm. He was now dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. He was an experiential Trinitarian. Hmm. So when people say, well, where is the Trinity revealed? It's not revealed in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's not revealed in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. It was revealed in time, and it was prophesied in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and then it is taken for granted in the New.
And, and I'm sorry, I don't want to rebut everything you say, James. I just, but when I read the New Testament, what I see is when it says the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, I just see it as all one. I just see it as God manifesting in and through God, in and through Christ, and in and through the Holy Spirit. I, I, then what's the, what is the Son and the Father doing sending the Spirit? I will send you another comforter. Because he then had transcended his flesh, and he took the right hand of the Father, and he, yeah, he overcame his flesh, and then he did. He doesn't have the flesh any longer? Oh, I don't think so any longer, no. He's not the God-man any longer? He's not the God-man any longer, no. No. We can have another show if you want. <laughs> no, well, because... No, you... That... that I, I've, I've just never understood why anyone has ever come up with that idea. There's I'm nothing, not original in it. There's no, but there's nothing in the New Testament that anywhere indicates that he ceases to be the God-man. Revelation, uh, I think, does. And I don't want to go debate with you back and forth, but I think there's a chapter in Revelation where we see that the one on the throne who has hands to take scrolls uh, is the only one on that throne and is... Only being yeah, but who's in front of the throne? It's the lamb the, standing as if slain. Right. The lamb. He still has the marks of his sacrificial uh, offering. The lamb's standing as if slain. Yes. Yeah. He can be recognized as the one who gave his life. Yeah. I would submit that if Christ is no longer the God-man, you no longer have a basis of salvation. Yeah. Because I it would, is only by union with him and being in him that we have eternal life. I don't disagree with that. However, I agree with 1 Corinthians 15 that says that after the resurrection, then God becomes all and all, and the Son submits himself even to the Father. And so I see that It doesn't submission. say the Father becomes all and all. It says God. God becomes so all in all. So once the specific works of Father, Son, and Spirit are accomplished, right. then there is the one worship of the one God. That's not all I'm the saying. Not the subordination of the Son. And that doesn't mean that the Son ceases to be the uh, God. It, does say, it doesn't say it ceases to, but I'm sorry, I would have to disagree with you that God becomes all in all. The Son even, it says, the Son even himself. So you're assuming that God there means Father. We assume a lot when we read Scripture. But isn't it interesting that when we look at John 1, 1, you say, we don't know, but you do know there. I don't know. It's just this how I read it. I'm not trying to be dogmatic here. I'm just saying this is but how I understand it. But you can't avoid it because dogma simply means teaching. Okay. All right. Let's go to our next uh, guest. Um, am I on? Yeah. You are on. Okay. I have a question for both of you, if that's all right. One for each. Uh, they have he goes to do first. With... Okay. That's fine. Uh, it's a methodological question. I feel like a lot of this has taken place about the Trinity, but it's not really about the Trinity. It's more like, can someone be a non-Trinitarian and still be a Christian yes. in terms of, like, in epistemology? So my question to James first is, is it both necessary and sufficient that one have all the knowledge of the core beliefs to be a Christian? I know you talk a lot about, on your show, about constantly reforming. The reformers talked a lot about a, a reformation that takes place in you constantly. Um, and so I feel like someone could not have the core within them, but still have the sort of love of the Holy Spirit and not know a lot of the things uh, us as a church have always talked about. And those could be isolated cases. Um, so that's my question to you. My question for you, Sean, is I do think there, are an, uh, there is an actual core. And I know you were saying that it's just revealed over time, but you also seem to think that there's no dogma to be put in place at all. And all I would say to that is, um, you either uh, have 
Um, you can either say there's no dogma at all and be a dogmatist, or you can say there is some dogma and you're a dogmatist. Either way, it's self-defeating. Yeah, if you say there's no so dogma, I, that's I, a dogmatic I statement. I teach, you, you define, okay, dogma means teaching. I teach the Bible every week, and I'm emphatic on things that I believe in. So just, just understand uh, the, what I'm trying to talk about, not literally meaning it. When I say no dogma, I'm talking about our current understanding of the word. And I'm not talking about it just meaning teaching. So just understand, I'm just trying to convey a general sense of what I'm thinking. Now you ask, answer is. Well, I, I did answer that question earlier when I <coughs> addressed the issue, uh, the, the difference between knowing something is true and denying it and being ignorant of something. So I'm not saying that it is a requirement of salvation that a person have theological perfect, perfect knowledge of the Trinity or, or these other things. But there is a fundamental definitional uh, baseline that is the proclamation of the gospel. And it is clear that in the New Testament, the apostles hold people to that level and if you deny it, then you're a false brother, you are an antichrist, whatever else it might be. And if you do not know the gospel, it needs to be proclaimed to you. The idea that you can have the core because you're seeking after God, but you don't even know what God has done in Christ or something like that, that would be the end of Christian missions, uh, as far as I understand it. There has to be, there is a... How can they be saved if there is no preacher? They, the preacher must be sent. The message must be proclaimed. It's not just brought in by osmosis. So uh, I will leave it to God to uh, judge an individual's heart as to the level of their, their knowledge and accuracy and consistency and so on and so forth. We can't judge that. What we can judge is what is the gospel and what is not. Okay. And we are called to proclaim that gospel. I would agree. With you. I think I that's agree. fair enough. Can I ask one follow-up? You They're must be quick, sir. Everyone behind you is going to hit you if you do. And we have three on, we have three right. on the phone. It just has to do with uh, election, then. Where is, how does election take place? Oh, boy. Like, everybody oh wants boy. to bring that in there. Throw him out! Oh. Um, look, I, look, I have debated this subject many times, and I wouldn't have any problem uh, doing so. Uh, it, oh. I, I am not in any way, shape, or form uh, backing away from my belief in the absolute sovereignty of God. When does election take place? According to Ephesians chapter 1, it takes place eternally in God to his good pleasure. I mean, that's just simply the answer that is given. So if, if that's what you were asking, that's the only answer I can give. Okay. Excellent. I like it when guys wear ties. Hey, my name is Adam. I'm married to that pretty lady that asked the first question. That was really good. Did she make you wear the tie? No. Oh, okay. All right. Just wondering. But uh, this question is for both of you. I'd, I'd love to, to hear what you have to say. Um, given that you both would claim that you do teach from the Bible um, to people, um, does biblical um, objective truth exist? And depending on what your answer is to that, how do you incorporate that into your uh, teaching uh, to other people on how they should live? I'll go first. I think biblical uh, objective truths do exist, but I think we don't understand them completely. And so I think we, uh, look, we have a subjective experience, each of us, 
with the word. It's a subjective experience. And then ultimately God reveals his objective truths. So I'm not talking about relativism here. I'm just talking about God has his objective truths, but every person has to come to understand what those are by the spirit. So you teach the best of your ability. Someone can accept or reject it, but the spirit works on them as they seek. That's my answer, Brother James. One of us has said we don't know a whole lot more often than the other guy has. That's me. And I would simply say that I believe that not only is there objective biblical revelation, but that the reason God has given it to us is a gift of love so that we may know him and worship him aright and may understand the great heritage that is ours as believers in what God has done in Christ in the gospel. And so I don't believe that any one of us has a perfect knowledge. So many of the things that he says, I agree that we grow, we come to a great, greater understanding. But that, what is missing here is the distinction between core definition, really important stuff around that, little bit less important stuff around that, that, that recognition of what is absolutely definitional and marks off the borders, and then what is really important and will end up influencing things, then it gets out into what's called the adiaphora, the things that there's, there's, there's ability to, to disagree. And we, it's, and, but the reason is God has not chosen to give great clarity on that. I believe God has chosen to give great clarity on who he is and what he has done. We, the timing and stuff like that, we can have arguments about other things, but those are the definitional things. And that's, a, that's an objective truth. Good evening, gentlemen. My name is Ryan. Um, I've been following both of your ministries for a long time. And a couple of things that really, uh, really stand out for me, at least, is that both of you have a genuine love uh, not just for Christ, but also for Mormons. And considering uh, just the subject nature of tonight's discussion, I was wondering, given your different views of who Christ is, um, I would wonder how on the personal level both of you deal with the fact that many of the people, or at least some of the people to whom you've ministered, will never come to know him as he is. I think that's the heart of the matter, if I may. Mm. Go ahead. Well, I, when, I, when I look at the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts, for example, it seems to me that in the majority of instances when Paul primarily, but Peter as well, uh, other than the great outpouring on, on the day of Pentecost, in most instances when the gospel is proclaimed, there's a minority response to it that's positive. And the majority response is to reject it. Uh, that's why Paul keeps getting like stoned <laughs> uh, and driven out of cities and, and, and things like that. And so I see my first duty as love for God, love for his truth, and love for people. And so my heart breaks when I see someone reject the very message that would give them eternal life. But I'm not shocked by that because I have a biblical understanding of where man is and the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit to raise someone to spiritual life. Um, if, I, if I were to become discouraged every time that happened, I would, would have given up a long time ago. 
Um, instead, I, I, I continue to hope to pray. Uh, to pray to, I continue to pray to have hope that people will hear that message and respond to that message. Okay, and, and James and I are going to agree to truncate our responses now because we are running out of time. We have three on the line, you three here. Uh, but uh, I believe that uh, in the day, which is today, God writes his uh, laws upon our minds and upon our hearts. And I believe that there is a uh, total reconciliation at work. Not, a, uh, not, not everybody will be his sons and daughters. And those who aren't his sons and daughters, uh, they are going to have a completely different experience with God than what, what his sons and daughters are going to have. The LDS who are going to refuse him here and if you refuse the gospel here, that's between uh, God and them. And, and I just have to do hands off. But I do believe seekers of truth will find him. And, and that if there's a Latter-day Saint who is seeking truth, they will find him. And, and so I just have the hope in that to share the gospel with them. And, but I believe that um, God will judge their hearts, all things uh, that they have been given, take it into account, and work it out. I hope that answered you. Sorry, a little rambling. All right, two more quick questions, brethren. And then we're going to two more brethren, and three more brethren, and then we're out of here. Uh, well, first of all, my name's Charlie, and I want to thank both you gentlemen for tonight. It's been absolutely amazing, really amazing. Um, I'm living proof that uh, you can receive Christ without the gospel being taught to you. I've received the Holy Spirit and come to know God before I heard any scripture in my life. Um, I have one, scri one scripture I'd like to read real quick and, and maybe get your opinions on for the, you know, the creedal Trinitarianism. Uh, it's uh, John 20, 22, where Jesus is in the upper room and he says, speaks to him and he says, uh, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, he, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, would he not have said, May I call the Holy Spirit to be upon you? Should I bring the Holy Spirit down? When he breathed on him, he breathed the spirit into them. So my question is, that's the one thing that, that separates me with me and Creedle, is that scripture alone. Actually, they received the Holy Spirit when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was saying to, uh, was, had already taught them in John chapters 14 and 16 that he was going to send them another comforter who would be the Holy Spirit. So you can't separate John uh, chapter 20 from John 14 and 16, especially because there's one reference there, and 14 and 16 are entire verses talking about the same subject. But did he not just breathe on them and the breath of God would they receive? When it says receive, spirit? he says he did not say you are receiving. He said receive, and they would on the day of Pentecost. Okay, I'm more confused now. Okay, thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick, and I'll be quick. James, I like your shoes, by the way. Thank you. Oh, those are nice. <laughs> oh, James. Oh, sorry. Yeah, come on. I like, I like <laughs> your shoes too, Sean. But James has uh, awesome shoes. Anyways, um, I'm just Don't curious. What you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm just curious, James, and I want to hear both of your opinions on this, but this is mostly to James. Uh, what you think about John chapter 8, where it says... Um, I have many things to say. Oh, he says this. Therefore, I said unto you, that you would die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you would die in your sins. And then, John, 
uh, I don't think John was confused because he's one of his apostles, says they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So I'm just curious what your opinion is. Where, where does it say they spoke to him of the Father? This In is John, John 8. This is John chapter 8, verses 27, but you can go from verses 12 to 30. I'm not going to take the time. Okay, thank you. But I'm just curious uh, your opinion because John specifically says that Jesus was speaking to him of the Father. If he says that I am he, he was speaking to him of the Father. Uh, can you explain that? Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, I am the Father as well. No, no, Jesus, Jesus, even when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he uses a plural pronoun, a plural verb. I, I and the Father, we are one. Jesus never confused himself with the Father at all. Um, and when he says in verse uh, 24, I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, who are you? Jesus said to them, just I have been telling you from the beginning. And nowhere does it say anything... Uh, Oh, okay, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So it's he who sent him that is the Father. The fact is, the Son identifies himself with the I am sayings in John 8, 24, John 8, 58, John 13, 19, and John uh, 18, 5 through 6. So Jesus is identified as the I am, just as the Father is, but that, that's what I explained earlier. One being of God... Yahweh. The Father is identified as Yahweh. The Son is identified as Yahweh. The Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. That's the being of God. One being, three persons who are distinguished, as Jesus distinguishes himself from the Father right here. He says, I've been sent by the Father. He doesn't say, I sent myself. Well, sorry, the way I understand that is the Word was made flesh, but the Son that was created through Mary was sent by the Father. The Word was sent. I agree with that. But the Word eternally existed in communion with the Father. So that means the Son has eternally God. existed. The Word was God. As uh, a person. And then it says uh, in verse 19, Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you'd also know my Father also. That's right, because he's the perfect revelation of the Father. But that's still the distinction that is made, that is introduced to us in John 1.1, 1, 1, where the Logos is distinguished from the Father, and it specifically said that the Son is the one who exegetes the Father. You have to allow those distinctions to exist. I love looking out here at you guys' faces. I'm sorry. I mean, you guys are just like this. Can you explain? All that? of you, wake up! We're saying something here. Can you explain? Uh, I said I'll let you go. No, Patrick, you're done. Enough questions. No. Can you explain Isaiah 9, 6, which says... He'll go forever, you guys. Very quickly, very quickly, the, the Isaiah, uh, yes. The little baby would be called, uh, that was born in Bethlehem, would be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Yes. And very, very quickly, that. it is very common for people to confuse the use of the, the Hebrew term aviad in Isaiah 9, 6, as if that is a name for the Father, so that the Son is the Father. Um, uh, father is almost always in the Old Testament used as Creator, and when it says Aviad, uh, their father of eternity, I think that is fulfilled in Colossians chapter 1, where it said that the Son is the creator of all things. It is not a Trinitarian reference in the sense of identification with the Father and a confusion of the Father and the Son. I discussed that in my book. Let's go, to, uh, let's go to Brandon in Ogden. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? I appreciate you guys. Um, got a question for James mostly I know your position Sean but uh, you both are smart guys and uh, so my question is how does how does the person in Africa or wherever 
uh, with the Bible, uh, nothing else, come to know uh, all the details of the Greek and so on. You guys are talking about the Greek and all these, you know, intricacies of, of this. Um, what does the scripture say to, to support your position of the Trinity? I mean, do they got to know the Trinity? This, this person who is never going to meet anyone like you, how do they come to know God, are they going to come to know the Trinity? And well, I'd like to know James's position. Well, well, Brandon, Love you guys, I'll think you're out there or, or uh, answer up here. Thanks, brother. Well, well, Brandon, I'm I'm a little confused as to why someone would take an exceptional situation and say this needs to be normative for the entire church. What we're talking about here is has God given to His church the entirety of what He wants us to know, and is that not a gift of grace? The idea that, well, yeah, but what about someone over here? Well, doesn't the scripture say uh, there are those who are untaught and unstable who bring about their own destruction? That means there are people who are taught and are stable. And we, diff we obviously here just completely uh, separate from one another because what I'm saying is God has given to his church a specific organization and a rich heritage in the scriptures, and he joins people to that church. And uh, if, if uh, otherwise, you're just left with individualism, and I don't believe that, uh, that God calls us to that kind of individualism. He brings us into a body, and we are to serve one another. That's why even in Philippians chapter 2, it says, have this attitude amongst yourselves. It's plural. Yeah. Brother James, uh, we're going to take, uh, we're, we're going now to one short spot by me, and then we're going to give James the final word. Uh, he can say whatever he wishes to wrap it up. I just want to say thank you very much. I understand a little bit better uh, what James teaches. I, uh, it, I am learning uh, about some things. I just hope that I and others can have the liberty to differ until we come to understand the truths that you, that you know. And that's what I'm looking for, James, is for all of us to back off a little bit, just a little bit, all right? Uh, uh, here, check out this spot. <laughs> Well, there it is. We humbly submit to you that what you just watched was the religion of the past embodied by our brother, James White, and the religion of the inevitable future, and that was represented awkwardly by me. The Bible is clear. All that it was about and was expected to be and anticipated to be wrapped up in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. What is left is a body of believers in whom God writes his laws upon their minds and hearts, Gone are the days of playing church. Gone are the days of religious authority. Gone are the days of towering brick and mortar. Gone are the days of tithes and being worthy in the punishments of men. Right now, the Bible is a map for everybody seeking truth. The Spirit is moving and calling people. And gatherings of people, as casual as people at a restaurant, to people who are in some building or whatever, that is the body. That is the church. All the doctrinal disputations should be over because it all ended with Christ Jesus having the victory, returning, taking up his bride, and wrapping the whole age up. It's all today, all of it, is about faith. And then it is definitely about love. Love for God first, and then love to each other as a result of that love for God. 
And with every person having the right to choose how they're going to pursue God according to the Spirit working on them, where they're at in their lives, if this resonates to you, join us here on HOTM.TV on Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, or join us on Sundays at Campus Church, live stream, verse-by-verse study. It won't cost you anything. There's no membership. There's no discipline. And if you disagree with what's taught, you have that right. We love you anyway. We just want to talk about what the Bible says and let people decide how that fits in their mind and in their heart and be free in Christ as a result. Heather James. Respond to that. The religion of the past is also the religion of the future because there is only one faith that has been delivered to the saints, and we are to epagonizomai. We are to contend earnestly for that once for all delivered to the saints' faith. And the promise of Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant being written upon our hearts is brought out in the book of Hebrews, and it becomes the very foundation of the teaching of the gospel that is to continue after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. There are New Testament books that are written after that time period, which likewise demonstrate that the church of Jesus Christ is not of the past. It is going to be there until he comes again, which is yet future. And when we talk about uh, this being the religion of the past, uh, I would just simply point out that this evening, I believe I've presented to you a biblically based understanding of who God is. And I would simply ask you to consider very carefully what you really believe about Scripture. Is it sufficient to reveal to us who we are to worship? Or is it simply, well, we don't know, we don't know. I think that we can know. And when we struggle with things, we always have to ask ourselves a question. Is the struggle because of a lack of clarity in the Word of God? Or is the struggle because of something within me? That really is the question. So thank you very much for listening this evening. Fair enough. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Sam Young. Thanks, you guys, for enduring. If there's any food left, please take it.